I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Everything. School of Everywhere. School of All at Once. This is Wang. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. What's happening? I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. There's no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you... Be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. Wow, that looks really good. Time is waiting in the wings. The universe he speaks of senseless things. is so much bigger than you realize. Of all the places I could be, I just want to be here with you. Remember our mission concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. This is a commissioned show for the Ed Burke experience. We were going to cover it eventually anyway, but it is so immense of a film and so intimidatingly dense and infinitely deep that giving us that hard nudge to make it happen benefits everyone. So it kind of gave us no more excuses. We have an extensive cast of guests for you, as it turns out that this movie was rather popular in the circles we operate. And also, it's a very well-timed show because it just came out on Amazon Prime in the UK, which is a relief because there is no UK Blu-ray. So hello to Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? Hollywood actress Maya Suris. Stop putting Google eyes on everything. Greg Downing of Through the Wind Door. Do you see these? You don't get one of these unless you've seen a lot of bullshit. Pardon my French. These all sound so threatening. And friends of the show, Alejandra Vargas. I love this movie a lot. And Chris Finnick. Please be kind. If you haven't seen it, everything we are about to say is going to be rather confusing. But I will say right now that this is <clears throat> the film of the decade. Oh.
And I said that when I came back from the cinema after seeing it once and folks assumed that I meant the past decade. Nope, that is Mad Max Fury Road tied with Into the Spider-Verse, and no, I don't need to declare a winner between those two because our community put it to the vote, and after many, many ballots, those two ended up tied. Thus, making this the closest to empirical fact that we need. But that was the 2010s. I mean, this is the film of the 2020s. Released in 2022, that gives us eight more years, depending on whether you count 2030 as the last year of the decade or the first of the next, for any other film to step up and challenge this one. And I eagerly anticipate looking forward to viewing any potential contenders for movie of the decade. But right now, that particular trophy is held by everything everywhere all at once. One thing is for sure, I would never in a million years have expected the directors of this vaunted champion to be Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart, a duo known collectively as Daniels. Now we've talked about their first film as a commission as well some years ago and we were frustrated and irritated by it. That is the 2016 movie Swiss Army Man. Tiny, wet-mouthed Paul Dano finds the corpse of Daniel Radcliffe on a beach of an island that he is marooned on. Radcliffe then farts, so long and so loud and so powerfully that Dano is able to ride him like a speedboat. Then, when Dano is thirsty, Radcliffe dribbles a bunch of handy water. Go back and listen to that show. We absolutely stand by what we said then. So Dan asks what Netflix is, because Dano's been talking to him about... Um, Netflix and Netflix chill. And chill as a concept, and then Dan, in response, gets a massive boner. Just this huge, prehensile erection. And it's just Which, tenting I mean, I, his I, pants. I get it. I mean, Netflix is an exciting concept. Yeah. The idea that you can stream TV straight into your living room. Yeah. Oh! Whoa! Whoa! It's moving! What's happening? Oh! What is that? It's still alive! What is it? It's... And frankly, the chaotic music video for DJ Snake's Turn Down For What which, not coincidentally, also contains a prehensile boner that wiggles, is far closer in tone and execution to what we see here in what, for brevity's sake, I will be referring to as everything. Now, pertinently, this movie hit cinemas about two minutes before the internet at large suddenly became disenchanted with multiverses, after Doctor Strange experienced an adventure in an alternate dimension and had to pass through many picturesque but inconsequential universes to get there, and that film was literally billed as Multiverse of Madness! Bearing in mind this is the internet at large, or more specifically, the part of the internet that talks about films all the time. It is not general audiences, who will, I would imagine, receive multiverses gladly for many more years. Let's hope. After Warner Brothers leveraged enough of their own properties, wherein the adorable mysteries of Scooby-Doo brush up against the eye-gouging, genital-mutilating, endless rape and infant-side-filled utter horror of Game of Thrones in a colourful Fortnite-looking Smash clone. The Multiverse as Product this is an evolution of the early superhero solo movies to the Marvel superhero team-up and eventually three dozen superhero all-star crossovers. Business types and creative folks ask themselves, what's next? And the answer has been multiverse. But while a lot of people are well-versed in this expansive concept thanks to decades of comic books, DC crises, sliders, Rick and Morty, Community, the Jet Li film The One, it's actually a very challenging story type. 
I have been purposefully writing a multiverse for nine years now, and it wasn't just about leveraging properties. And it requires not only three-dimensional thinking, but potentially fourth and fifth dimensional. There is always the possibility of just losing your audience because you need everyone to be on the same page, and that page is hard to read. So this film does what I have frequently done. It focuses on the small and personal. And as a way of navigating this conceptual sphere, we will be jumping on your shoulders like Rakakuni and guiding you listeners by the hair, moment by moment, and I will ask our guests, when we hit something rich and explosive, to voice their thoughts on the details and implications. And bear in mind, folks, this is a film that will be studied for decades hence. There is absolutely no way we can mention everything in everything and we want to leave you with aspects to discover for yourself so put down your tweets about i can't believe you didn't mention x those things are for you to mention to everyone else so i'll give i'll deliver a little bit of what happens at the beginning of the film and then we can start the first question we meet evelyn wong played by martial arts and asian drama empress michelle yo this evelyn is a frustrated flustered laundromat owner. She is married to Waymond, played by Keihei Kwan, who is short round from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and The Goonies. They have a teenage daughter named Joy, played with astonishing intensity later in this film by relative newcomer Stephanie Sue, who is herself tired and frustrated and dating a half-Mexican girl named Becky that her mother seems to be keeping at arm's length. Too much is going on all at once today. Evelyn <laughs> is holding a party tonight in celebration of Chinese New Year and inviting the regulars from the laundromat. And this coincides with Evelyn's father, played by legendary James Hong, Lo Pan from Big Trouble in Little China, and the goose who is Poe's father in Kung Fu Panda, who, by the way, that that panda gets guided by Michelle Yeoh in the second one. She's the uh, the, the sheep. Yes, her father or Gong Gong, is visiting to shower her in disapproval. But it seems actually like this visit may in fact be something permanent. But before that unpleasantness can start properly, they have to haul ass to the tax office to be interviewed by grumpy, frumpy, magnificent Jamie Lee Curtis, Blue Steel and Fierce Creatures, about declared business expenses that don't qualify for tax exemption. And to top all of that... The sweet-natured Waymond is secretly hiding divorce papers from Evelyn. So before we go to the tax offices, what did our guests pick up from the first 10 minutes of this very visual storytelling-based domestic situation? The movie opens with uh, a shot of uh, Evelyn, Waymond, and Joy in a mirror on their uh, counter, and they're singing karaoke together, and they are having so much fun, and they are so happy, and it's a beautiful moment, and then it just slams into Evelyn, trapped at the dining room table, her entire life oppressively leaning over her on this cabinet, trying to solve tax paperwork, the most awful thing in the world. Right off the beginning of the movie, there's this recurring motif of circles and circular objects and it starts with that mirror that they appear in at the very beginning and kind of continues on into the next scene that mirror is always kind of right behind evelyn when she is trying to prepare all the receipts and the tax paperwork waymond appears in it at one point a lot of recurring imagery of different reflections 
of oneself and different versions of somebody either appearing in a window or a mirror and specifically in these like circular round objects. And that is going to become very important later for what happens in the movie. There was also one little moment that I, I just noticed it this last time I watched it. I I thought it was very lovely. Um, they're talking about Gong Gong in the very beginning and, you know, Evelyn's trying to make everything perfect for him. And there's a, a point where they, they mention his name and the camera racks focus from Evelyn to a photograph of Gong Gong, James Hong, holding a baby Evelyn. Evelyn kind of wondering, like, do I have a happy family? Do I have a successful business? And Gong Gong is, is just right there holding her as a baby kind of in the background. And one of the patriarchs of this family, he's kind of always there and always a presence, even if he isn't physically in the room. That circle motif is the first thing I wrote down as well, Maya. The um, As well as the family in the mirror, you've got the fan, the googly eyes, the O in divorce on the divorce papers seems to be just a little bit amplified uh, to draw your eye to it. The washing machines and the tumble dryers downstairs stairs circles turn up over and over and over again in this and yeah all over the place at some point talk about the very key circle but thematically Mm -hmm. there's also this circular uh chain of disapproval it within the family that family opinion that causes rifts and stress and difficulty between people and i think that pulling the focus to that photograph kind of gives you the jumping off point of where that circle's going to go. And later mm-hmm. on, we get to see them closing. I, I would add that there's a, a duality in the circles that we get introduced to that isn't very apparent. But the 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 circle that, you know, like the, the big deal that we'll come to later, um, and also that is shown whenever someone's like got the circle on their forehead that they that they staple there or specifically the one that Jamie Lee Curtis draws on that big piece of tax paperwork well, that the receipt yeah. for the karaoke she's machine. outlining something yeah. but she just does it so hard and so long it begins to resemble some kind of I don't know char grilled bagel exactly it, and it's so like clearly you know this this dark like oppressive thing encircling you and it wasn't until the the most recent time I watched it that I realized that like you literally have a yin and yang with the Google AIs with the light on the outside and the dark on the inside and then the oppressive circles are almost always the exact opposite mm. and so you you're from from jump street the movie is telling you these are the things that are that are kind of like nesting around this family and and this is the the sort of like reality that they're that they're living in and you're already seeing how how someone like waymond is and we don't even know that this is something he's doing, but how he's kind of like struggling against that oppressive everyday grind. Yeah. It is significant that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's Deirdre very specifically says, I have all your life in front of me. And she is, it's written reduced to paper and notes and everything that frustrates Evelyn. She doesn't like writing paperwork. She hates it. So in the elevator up to meet Jamie Lee Curtis as Deirdre, Wayman suddenly snaps into an alternate personality and tells Evelyn that she has the choice to walk in two directions when they leave, either to the desk that she has been summoned to or instead to the janitor's closet. He gives her a Bluetooth earpiece and starts writing things down for her to put in her package of, of notes. 
and she experiences a lightning fast flashback montage which takes us from her birth all the way up to today so what do we see in just this imagery again we're not quite at deirdre's desk yet right from basically the word go evelyn has had a difficult relationship with her father uh because there's the whole She's born. The doctor introduces her to her father and says, I'm sorry, it's a girl. And he's immediately disappointed. Yeah. Which which I know like plays into like the whole uh the one child policy that I don't believe China technically has anymore, but no, at the moment around. they're now being told to uh, have more children because uh, the it led to an imbalance. Right. But that must have Gee, just, who could have seen that coming? Just that 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 it's um it's a girl and disappointment must have stung so many Chinese viewers of this. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm sure that that is very relevant to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of this is just framed by Gong Gong's disappointment in her because for whatever reason he doesn't like the movie never really goes into why, but Gong Gong kind of disapproves of Waymond. I'm, I'm not really sure why he's a nice he guy. He says he's so silly, I, so I suppose I, he was just looking for someone who's very, very serious like him. Right. So I guess that's it. So it just sets up that conflict that is mm. kind of at the core, one of like the main things at Evelyn's, like the whole, like there's a, as popular as it is lately in a lot of movies, there's a lot of generational conflict in this mm. movie. Yeah, there's a lot of mummy means well. One thing that I didn't notice the first two times I saw this is at the end of that montage, there's uh, a male voice on Evelyn's telephone saying, we need to talk about your father. And I hadn't twigged that this parental visit isn't just a flying, you know, coming in to visit his daughter. He's here for from now on and it would appear to be something to do with alzheimer's which is another massive sting for people in the audience yeah i i I also get the you don't she's not really a character at all but you get the impression that evelyn's mother has passed away Mm. possibly recently almost certainly like you see her in all the in in the flashback and in a couple different scenes of of like specifically, I think whenever Evelyn gets in the car, I think her mother is always shown as being next to her father there. But she's also never named, and she's very conspicuously absent from uh, from the okay, yeah, he's coming over to live with his daughter because no one's left to take care of him. Hmm. Um, but one of the other things that I think is notable in that flashback sequence is this is an Evelyn. And this is something they're seeding very deliberately. She regrets almost every decision that she ever makes. That seems to be kind of her like her her entire reaction to to these giant moments. It's like, oh no, I have done the wrong thing. And even when Waymond is there, and and you know, Kehu Kwan is just absolutely delightful, running around the laundromat, and he's just like so excited, and and she seems just almost not even not even responsive except to, to to the very like smallest degree and then when you see how she reacts to joy and then you you get to see Michelle Yeoh just really actually put some genuine like well joy in into that performance and it's it's just this completely different transformation and so you get this like miniature like micro narrative of like oh no i have screwed up everything in my life oh wait no this child is amazing years later shit i screwed that up too and th- this is the foundation of the film. Everything that follows is 
built upon this foundation of a familiar family drama. We could just have been describing The Farewell, the uh, Aquafina uh, drama, which is fantastic. It just then adds to that in, in, in ways that make it something that is very much in our wheelhouse. As you were just saying a moment ago with the cinematic language of drama, hmm. the way that opening portion sort of lays out the original idea of this is what it's like to live in this person's life. It is as it, as it feels to Evelyn and as it feels to us, the audience, everything, everywhere, all at once. And it's before we get to that desk, when she is sitting at that desk and pondering literally everything, that's when the first part one title comes up mm. and she's just sitting there alone and then it segues to into the car going to the irs place intermixed into all of this are tons of tiny little moments that feels like that they've been pushed to like to the attention of the audience without really knowing why and yet almost all of this will become relevant later on whether we're simply talking about the deafness with the way Evelyn pushes the footstool when she's looking through the bags of clothes or the way they drive past that sign spinner on the way to the IRS. It all becomes something that is reflected back onto in some way later. They're all threads of her potential. And there's there's facets that go on in this early part as well that that demonstrate the the multiple threads of stress that in, are intruding on Evelyn's mind and how part of the the difficulty that she has is her inability to separate them all out and things like the fact that she's talking in multiple languages at once and she ends up mangling pronouns not through any uh, malicious reason but just because the, the pronouns are different in one language to another and she has difficulty juggling them and working out what she's supposed to be saying in this particular context um, and the as they go up in the elevator and she's talking to her father about the reason that they're here there are facets of truth modification that she makes for Gong Gong's sake, or she tells herself that it's for Gong Gong's sake. It's not. It's to uh, soften the potential for conflict between them. She's doing it for her own sake as much as his. Mm. But she's not helping herself by introducing untruths to the situation because for everything that she tells him that is an outright fib... Becky is Joy's very good friend. We're going in to speak to the IRS about getting a, a new business license so that we can expand. She then has to keep track of, as well as everything that is true and is going on, which is already overwhelming her, she now has to keep tabs on the versions of the truth that she's given, in, in this instance, to her father, but I'm willing to bet that she has given modified versions of the truth to other people as well. And she has to keep that all straight in her head too. Otherwise, that will end up just everything will come apart because these fibs are tied to foundations that aren't real. Alternate realities that you've had to fabricate. Exactly, yeah. 
Or not, because as mentioned earlier, Gong Gong may well be suffering from Alzheimer's, so it's entirely possible he won't remember what she said anyway, and that's its own sadness. Mm. So next part, now that we're in Act 1, everything. While sat at Deirdre's desk, that is Jamie Lee, folks, Evelyn follows the urgent Wayman's instructions and puts her shoes on the other feet. Doing so appears to warp her backwards into the other pathway and thus the janitor's closet where she finds Waymond. But how can she and Waymond be sat at this desk and also in the janitor's closet? So, symbolism aside, let us begin to tackle the literal sci-fi at play here. What does Waymond say and how is Evelyn, her image shattered into multiple facets on screen, seemingly occupying two spaces at once? The sci-fi of this is not uh, explained from a technology perspective in practice, what they need to do is do something strange, something improbable, which uh, would not happen otherwise. Like, why would you put your shoes on the opposite feet? Don't do that. That's silly. But by doing that, it activates some sort of computer setup that's attached to her head. They're just little Bluetooth things. Um, I'm not really sure how they transmit those through other universes. I guess it's just something they can, like, cook up whatever universe they end up in. They could have explained that away in a line. Thank goodness for the doobly-doo. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for the doobly-doo. Uh, <laughs> you push the little green button on the doobly-doo when it makes the sound of a camera's flash powering up. <laughs> and, it sounds uh, like it's working, thus it must. And uh, what it's uh, shown later is that um, by doing something improbable, you pull yourself a little bit out of your universe, and then the machine can slingshot your consciousness along the alternate trails of your life to another path of your life that you did not take. And ending up there, you share your consciousness between those areas. Now, the person who slingshotted themselves will call the, I guess we could call the prime. The, the prime consciousness is the only one that, like, has control. But because the uh, alternate universe is, like, a functioning real timeline, when the prime brain is not in that alternate universe, that timeline just continues as normal. And by accessing that alternate timeline, you can travel between different universes, interact with other universes, or, and this is the inspired bit, you can just hop over there to your alternate self who knows how to do stuff you don't and bring those skills back with you to wherever you need them. It's a so little bit like in, uh, The Matrix meets Kirby. Yes. So in <laughs> the uh, So in the closet... She is currently in the universe where she sat uh, at the desk with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Deidre, and is having a conversation about her taxes. But she's also in the universe where, for some ungodly reason, she wandered into the, uh, the janitor's closet. And she's both places at once. And the prime consciousness is having trouble na uh, focusing on just one because both are happening simultaneously, she can see she could potentially see both at the same time, but that's really difficult for a brain to actually comprehend and hold on to. So she just kind of hops back and forth. Considering that we see Evelyn originally in a mirror, the way that the movie chooses to demonstrate this phenomenon mm. by imagining 
a cracked mirror and two different reflections of her, at least to start only two. That's continuing the original metaphor. The two films which inspired Daniels the most were in fact The Matrix and Fight Club. And back when we covered Swiss Army Man, we actually compared that to Fight Club for obvious Jack Tyler reasons, if you've seen both films. So if that is their Fight Club, this is their Matrix. Though I would almost say it has more in common with the Lego movie, which itself is revisiting and recalibrating The Matrix, and is also a strong contender for film of the last decade. Oh look, Lord and Miller. Maybe they'd have been good directing Solo. I'm glad that you brought up The Matrix because this whole scene where they're going into the IRS office really does feel like the first Matrix movie. Like you can, you know, you can sit at your desk, you can go with the the agents or you can listen to me, Morpheus, over the phone and I can tell you how to get out of this situation. It's it feels very much like that the setup for that first Matrix movie. So, I'm I'm glad that was mentioned. The other thing that I think is important and it becomes pretty significant later. The Waymond that contacts Evelyn calls himself Alpha Waymond. And he comes from something that he refers to as the Alpha Verse. So it's almost like this version of Waymond considers himself, you know, this is, it's a very loaded term now, but I think it's used pretty specifically and intentionally. He is the Alpha. He's the one that can kick wholesale ass. He knows exactly what's going on. He's much more in control and much more charming than Evelyn's Waymond, the one that we see with her in the you know in the laundromat and that's trying to get a divorce. He Although seems to have Alpha everything. Waymond also did have an Evelyn. She was a very different Evelyn. Specifically, she died. Um, when they cut back to there are scenes of people from the Alphaverse that are kind of going around in this van. RV situation the where they're of kind low of rent Nebuchadnezzars. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they're just kind of going around in this like desert wasteland in a in a van that looks like it was straight out of Stranger Things or something. Um, they're kind of monitoring where everybody is and what multiverse. In the van, Waymond has Evelyn's urn with him that he just kind of carries around with him wherever they go. So. It's it's pretty significant that in Alpha Wayman's multiverse, in his version of this set of events, she has already died. The idea that this is like the Alpha version of Waymond, I think, is is pretty significant, especially with how Wayman's arc continues through the rest of the film. So they set that up very e- very early that this is kind of the the top version or like the most confident, the most in control version of this character. And he's the one who knows everything. He's kind of holding all of the cards and holding a lot of the answers to what is happening in this multiple universe that we've set up. The the alpha verse is specifically the first universe to discover uh, alternate universes. As far as they know, I think that should be pointed out. They could be mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, they they absolutely could be wrong. But I think it's also significant that, being that it is very intentionally called the Alphaverse, their main goal seems to be to put everything back the way it used to be. It's a very, it's almost like a reactionary version of the multiverses where they just want everything to go back to the way it was. And they're very resistant to change. The way that they're getting all this information across is also, I think, 
extraordinarily smart in terms of using what you've got because this isn't an expensive movie but it's dealing with a lot of very potentially expensive sci-fi concepts just just the fact that like they don't have to deal with doubling actors to deal with multiple multiversal cells meeting themselves because they're you're slingshotting your consciousness around so instead of you know having the the green screen and the doubles and then this and then that you know the the biggest special effect they're relying on is their performers giving these varied and incredible performances which uh you know speaking of of alpha wayman like uh, kehu kwan i i had no idea he had this in him i mean it, like i've seen michelle yo for decades do a lot of different stuff and so I'm not surprised that she's great. Um, I, I do think this feels like maybe a role that has been waiting for her for decades. But um, I think Quan specifically gets to shine in a way that, you know, I, I never would have expected to see see him. Hey, Doctor Joe, no time for love. From not just the the way he's immediately different as Alpha Waymond, um, but just just the fact that he's kind of like this amazing emotional center. Um, but the the other thing that uh, I only caught this time was that that shitty Nebuchadnezzar van. That's the laundry <laughs> van that they take to the IRS. That's the <laughs> same van for the laundromat, just like apocalypsed up. And mm-hmm. so and so it's it's still like 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 you said, man, that they're trying to get things back to the way they were. There's there's no room for evolution there. They're still driving around in that same beat up old van. Yeah, and they're kind of repurposing some of the the things that they find, which is kind of like the whole, you know, it's the whole thrust of this movie is that they're constantly using found objects. They're repurposing things depending on what the situation is. Uh, you know, there's there's a big theme of that throughout the whole movie of people just picking up whatever they can find within their reach sometimes and using it to accomplish whatever their goal is. Which is just this great tool for comedy as well, because there's so many dark places that this goes. And the fact that you can be just like, okay, um, you know, we're we're dealing with like uh, a mother having to potentially like kill a family member. Um, okay, have someone eat some chapstick. We need to we need to reset a little bit. <laughs> I've just realized, Maya, your 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 avatar on Skype is a great big black bagel. With this oh well, it's it's the light. aperture. I it's, know it's it's a camera aperture, but specifically it's it's the aperture, aperture logo from Aperture Science. Yeah, yeah the, going Almost back to my like love of knew. portal. What? Yeah. Honestly, I, if if you were told tomorrow, Daniels directing the Portal movie. Yay! Yes. Oh yeah, Ooh. they absolutely could do that. Fuck, and, that's amazing. Oh, (laughs) I just saw the hearts go up. That's funny. I don't know this for certain because I didn't do the research. I was too distracted by other things appropriately. But I got the overall feeling like the directors of this movie were huge fans of the Wachowskis in general. Because not only elements of the Matrix happening in here, but parts of the, the cinematography in places or the action felt like stuff that reminded me of Sense8 or Cloud Atlas. You can even point out that they refer to themselves in the credits as the Daniels. Um, somebody Who mentioned the urn, by the way? Brendan. I did. Sharon noticed. I did not see this, but during the scene where it goes incredibly blindingly fast... Far, far later on in the film, when you you see a hundred different versions of Evelyn, including a cat Evelyn. I think the anime Evelyn is there for a few seconds longer. One of them is Mm -hmm. an urn, and it opens its urn top to scream. 
I did see I noticed, that. I noticed that. It was pretty funny. But uh, This movie is very funny. Have we established that, that it's her theories that actually broke down this multiversal science? That, that that Evelyn in the urn married to Alpha... So Alpha Evelyn was the one who came up with all of this. Yeah, Waymond explains that when he's talking about what verse jumping is okay. and, and how it came about. I know they did in the film. I mean, here. For the listeners at home. Oh, okay. The Alphaverse, where Alpha Waymond comes from, where he was married to Alpha Evelyn, who is the source of the theories of the algorithm that makes verse jumping possible. How the situation has gone horribly wrong... Alpha Evelyn was so consumed by her pursuit of this particular theory that she gave all of her focus, all of her attention, all of the elements of her that in the other universes, and in particular our Evelyn, for want of a better description, uh, her universe, are scattered and unfinished and unable to follow pathways to their natural conclusion. Alpha Evelyn was able to harness all of that into this one focused uh, pathway... And the downside of that is that she has tried to push her daughter, Alpha Joy, along that pathway with her. Having broken or discovered the algorithm that allows verse jumping to happen, the team have started training young people in how to actually do it. And one of the people that they have trained is Alpha Joy. And... Like her mother, who is extremely gifted in figuring this stuff out, Joy is extremely gifted in being able to do it. And Alpha Evelyn pushes her and pushes her and pushes her until she gets to the point where she has seen so many other universes, she is unable to keep them separate and her mind becomes the chaos that is the multiverse. This also makes... Alpha Evelyn, R.I.P.D., the tiger mom of the Evelyn universe, (laughs) the Evelyn multiverse, the one who really, really pushes her daughter, or pushed, and then went too far. Evelyn grapples with Deirdre with a language barrier, making everything worse, and she is dismissed from the desk with threats of charges of gross negligence for declaring hobbies as business expenses, Then, as they reach the elevator, Waymond reveals the divorce papers. So we've gone back to drama at this point. Again, encompassing the rest of the film, since so much gets missed amid everything, can we elucidate what are Waymond's reasons and intentions for filling in these divorce papers? This didn't really hit me until this watch-through, but Waymond's rationale behind serving Evelyn with divorce papers is a bit more complex than he's had enough of the situation that they're in and he wants to end it. There's a few things that he says that make me think he doesn't actually want a divorce. He doesn't want them to separate. He doesn't want this to end. But the people he's observed go through this process. Uh, his, I think Evelyn mentions his brother is divorced and she pins that as like the your, your brother's divorced and so now you think divorce is okay. But the other person he's observed is somebody at their church who giving the divorce papers to his wife 
put them in a position to actually have to talk about it, to have to confront what's going on with them. And that's what he wants. He wants them to break through this and actually talk about it in a way that Evelyn has been dismissing and dismissing and dismissing. One might call it a crisis. Indeed. So, yeah, that's that's his motivation behind it. He, he wants to bring things to a head and, and to sort of present them with a situation where amidst all of the overwhelm and all of the chaos this is now the most important thing can we please deal with it evelyn just does not choose to engage or make decisions until things reach a crisis point because so much of what the the film and and again this is something that becomes very clear once you've seen it and she's all like making decisions fucking sucks because i always make the wrong ones will not engage up until there is just no other point is not just entire like uh, reason behind him trying to res- resort to these major measures in order to get her attention but it's also in addition to being like the um like her superpower it's also kind of his because he's always there to sort of fill in whenever she freezes and you can see how that's just absolutely exhausting to him even though he's always just very good at it because we see her like sending him around to like okay i need you to put this fire i need to do wayman customer needs this and to the to the point where he's the one who's constantly getting them these extensions and and like if if not like you know necessarily like loopholes but just like trying to figure out a way to solve this when when evelyn is just completely disengaged and and so what you have is you've got these characters who could very well be extremely complementary if they could just like slow down and figure out how to click and it's absolutely frustrating. Like, even though Evelyn is incredibly, like, emotionally resonant and she's enjoyable to watch, you're you're just so frustrated with her because you can see it's like you're so close to this absolute cinnamon roll. Just like open your damn eyes, and the the movie really handles that impressively, without making Evelyn unlikable to an extent that you're not emotionally invested in her finally figuring that out. Like, because you you want her to not sign those divorce papers, even though the movie's giving you a lot of reasons. You're like, man, he's kind of right to push things this far. Something occurred to me that I'm sure was entirely unintentional. Their problem is no time for love, Dr. Jones. Uh, Though I do love Waymond, he's a wonderful, kind person. Uh, there's a moment of um, microaggression against Evelyn that he does not even realize, and he's not even doing it to be mean to her, but when he's trying to rescue the tax paperwork, he says, my wife mistakes her hobbies for businesses. Mm. And Evelyn just, she's been sliding in and out of this conversation, but she's checked in right at this moment to hear him say that. And the, and she looks so hurt. So even though, um, it's definitely fair to say Evelyn is the major problem going on with this family. She is not the only one who has caused hurt. Deirdre appears to pursue them to the elevator, prompting Evelyn to lash out and punch her on the nose. This summons security, and Wayman, being puppeteered Rakakuni style by Alpha Wayman, takes them out in physical combat. What makes the action sequences in Everywhere different from everything else? So this movie takes a lot of influence from 
sort of traditional kung fu films there's there's a ton of influences uh kind of scattered throughout and in every section of the movie we've already mentioned the matrix which of course was also heavily influenced by this but you see elements of things like crouching tiger hidden dragon you see elements of old jackie chan movies old bruce lee movies the kung fu hustle and shaolin soccer's especially with the you know the comedy bits that are in there as well. I I love the fact that there there is such an homage running throughout this whole film of like the the older and and you know more traditional Hong Kong films, but with the comedy that's infused in it, I think it does bend a little bit more to the Jackie Chan style because there is like I mentioned before there are a lot of like found objects thrown into these fights and they mix up a lot of things like for instance. Alpha Waymond removing his fanny pack, for instance, and using it like a set of nunchucks or like a wushu style rope dart to fight. It's a lot of stuff that you normally wouldn't see in like an American Hollywood blockbuster action film. Deirdre has a set of awards that she has gotten as a as a you know IRS preparer, tax preparer, and they look like butt plugs just straight out of the bat. Like they look like butt plugs. That was like my, when I first saw this in the theater, I was like, those are butt plugs. <laughs> like there's no way to around it. And believe it or not, that actually pays off in a couple of different scenes in this movie where like sex toys are actually worked in as weapons, like found object weapons in these fights, which is not something that you normally see, but Believe it or not, there is actually like a, a payoff to those objects being in uh, being included in these fights. And in one pretty significant part of the of the film, it ends up being the emotional fulfillment that somebody needs for Evelyn to progress. And I think we could probably get into that more when we talk about the end of the film. But I, I love the fact that they combine all of these different elements to make something that is very unique. And it is very comprehensive as, you know, an action movie. Um, when we talked about They Live, I mentioned a lot of the the long takes that they worked into the fight scenes. This film does a very similar thing where, and this is a very Hong Kong style thing as well, is that you, you live on the shots you have these very long takes of the fights and just kind of let it breathe and you show everything so there are not a lot of cuts you're seeing a lot of the actors doing the fight work you see the act and the reaction in the same shot or there were a couple of instances where they did use the stunt doubles and just did the a little bit of face replacement but it's pretty seamless you can't really tell that it's there. So I think they did a really good job of combining all these different elements to make something that is very unique and does have those comedic sensibilities to it, but also works very well as a comprehensive set of action sequences. So I definitely agree hard with the, the Jackie Chan energy. I actually found out that originally this movie was envisioned as a Jackie Chan movie Mm. before they eventually decided it was better if uh, the main character was Evelyn instead of, I don't know, whatever they were going to call Jackie Chan's character. Evan. And, uh, yeah, Evan. <laughs> uh, 
so I that energy still is very apparent, especially in the the fight with Alpha Wayman against the security guards. Mm-hmm. It feels like it was stolen, like Maya said, directly from a Jackie Chan movie. It's uh, not stolen. It's uh, reappropriated from a different reality. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't steal it because I don't think Jackie Chan ever beat anyone up with a fanny pack. But <laughs> the point is, it's something you could imagine him doing. Mm. Uh, he does an absolutely fantastic uh, version of this particular martial arts weapon in Shanghai Noon with a length of rope and a horseshoe. It's fan- it's I love anyone. I, it looks like the most complicated weapon in the world because chances of whacking yourself in the face with a heavy weight, which he does in the outtakes, are incredibly high, and chances of hitting anyone. It doesn't even seem like it should work because you're tangling this thing around your body. But if you watch someone who's a master work with it, it's it's physical genius which we we keep referring to. It's also kind of true that Michelle Yeoh's career initially had a lot of elements to it that were very similar to how Jackie Chan's career started Mm. out. So the idea that there is an alternative universe where this film got made with Jackie Chan instead, I'm fine with that. I think uh, it, it probably reaches peak Chan at the point with the trophy later on where she's <laughs> trying to keep it away from that guy. One of the things Jackie Chan does really, really, really well is that uh, it's it's prop related, uh, kind of uh, relative to what you were talking about, Maya, just in terms of if you ever see that scene in Rush Hour where he's trying to stop the vases being knocked onto the floor and he just keeps pushing guys away from them, leaping underneath them before they hit the ground. Even more so during Legend of the Drunken Master where he's just trying to get wine bottles open so that he can access his superpower of getting really, really pissed. It maintains the urgency of the fight. He's just trying to stop an antique getting destroyed. So that's where the tension is. And it's just, it it constantly gets moved around. I love that energy in fight scenes. And and, uh, honestly, since Jackie Chan kind of took a step back from uh, uh, being in martial arts movies, it feels like that's gone away a little bit. And it, there was quite a lot of it in the original Kung Fu Panda. Do you remember the bit with the uh, trying to get the, the bun the to eat? Or the dumpling, yeah. A really great place to follow stunt people is apparently Instagram. And uh, so two of, like, the, the two, basically the two guys she fights in uh, the later, the the later fight. like The bald guy wh- who's really hefty and the guy with the two sticks yeah. that are like those, Filipino those are, Eskrima. Yeah, those, those are the uh, brothers Andy and Brian Lee, or... I believe that's how you pronounce their names. And yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So they, they've like have like, you should look, I think it's just called martial arts club. They have YouTube videos and they have the, those guys have a very heavy Jackie Chan energy to them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there's so much Yen Wu Ping throughout all of the graceful movements in this. I just, I, I'm so glad Wu Ping lived long enough to be able to see this because I'm <laughs> anxiety ridden about where martial arts will be when he finally passes on. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: uh, Andy, the the brother with hair, is also played a death dealer in Shang Chi. Ah, yes. And then just the final, like, I like how it's not just pure like martial arts. Like, there's two heavy references to a uh, professional wrestling mm-hmm. in this this movie that are very cool to see. Like, just drop kicks, and uh, uh, there's a pretty intense uh, pile driver at one point. <laughs> Yeah, the the old head crush thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, uh, why you're not allowed to do that anymore. In yeah, the backbreaker. Jamie Lee Curtis's fighting energy is very much Diesel, just like mm-hmm. throwing herself around, but in a very way. Yeah, they throw some breakdancing moves in there too. One of the things I think really 
cements these action sequences as being not just impressive visually, but intentional to the narrative is the way they're always focusing on. And this comes back to just like something you talked about in terms of the Jackie Chan energy is there's always a, we're trying to reach an object or teach a lesson. Mm. And the, this is something that I think, you know, it, it helps just action scenes in general. Like if you look at the most, often cited favorite action scene in Shang-Chi, it's almost always the bus fight where it's like just playing keep away with the necklace. And so having the, the fight specifically with the Lee brothers is just a perfect escalation of goals and then, you know, going from keep away just to straight survival. Um, But the other thing that I think is notable is that this feels like, you know, like you were talking about Alex, that, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a world where we're not going to have the same, action legends in the next 10 to 20 years that we've had for so long. Mm. And so this movie feels like a very deliberate, not necessarily like passing the torch, but of a, a like bringing in of like the next generation because the Lee brothers have been doing their thing for, for many, many years. And what, if you look at some of their, their YouTube videos, they've got influences, not just from Jackie Chan, but they, they go straight like, you know Shaw Brothers. The a lot of the posing stuff that they do is is very you know much more in the vein of like those '60s '70s kung fu movies. Yeah. But what they're doing is they're taking all of their influences and kind of like kicking it up into this you know into this sort of like modern way of showing off their their stunt and action capabilities. And because you know even even though they never like. That, that's never necessarily a part of the film's text, but the fact that so much of everything everywhere is about the importance of paying enough attention that you're helping the next generation not repeat your mistakes and passing on the things that you've learned. You know, the, the fact that behind the camera that's happening as well, I, I think is, is just a really fun special little detail, but also you're getting this amount of talent in terms of these guys who know how to put together sick ass fight scenes with almost no money. And then Michelle Yeoh, who can, she spent decades like, okay, I'm going to walk into a room and I'm going to throw down with whoever I need to throw down with. And I can, I can make this work. And so like, she's got the experience and the adaptability and it's like, I'm not, I'm not sure that they, you know, set out to, you know, make this kind of like perfect stew in this way. But these things just sort of like stacked up on top of each other very neatly to not just make incredibly visually striking action scenes, but ones that really do buckle down into the narrative and the themes of the movie, even if they're not necessarily always meant to do that. It's just kind of like, yeah, no, it's it's all there. It's just more storytelling and more character and more thematic expression through action. And I think that's one of the reasons these particular moments really resonate but also because you can make room for things like, ha ha, he jumped on a butt plug. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was a little more than just ha ha. Everyone in the audience was like, oh, it was, oh my God. It was amazing being in the cinema for this. It really was. Such Everyone a knew great what they were crowd movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. And it's honestly, really the good. bit with the dog, you know which bit I mean. That might mm-hmm. be the funniest thing I've ever seen in a film. Just that few moments. And I think the thing that clinches it is the under the pause camera for just a few seconds. That is some Sam Raimi shit right there. I love that mm-hmm. bit so much. That uh, what you were saying there, Brendan, about the the 
the moving on from the previous generation of, of uh, stunt teams and, and martial artists experts in Hollywood, I, I, I could be misinterpreting this wildly. Uh, so Maya, if I really am, then please correct me. But I kind of feel like one of the big problems that Hollywood's got is that they don't if, if they have the thing that will solve the issue right there, they don't go looking for alternatives. Mm. And what that's meant for the last 20, 30 years is we have this team of experts who can do absolutely everything we want them to do. Why on earth would we go looking for other people to train up to do those things? And so they're now finding themselves that as people age out and aren't there anymore... Those the, the the people coming up to fill those places that they have been ignoring steadily for the last few decades aren't going to be there to, to fill those slots. And am I right in thinking that uh, Simu Liu, who played uh, Sean in Shang-Chi, is also effectively got the role by being a martial artist on YouTube? Mm-hmm. So they've now found themselves backed into a corner where they have to go looking for the guys who are doing this already. See also the music industry and the animation industry. I think there is a problem with, uh, and it's not just in the field of of the action design and stunts, but a lot of different, uh, you know, disciplines within film kind of like to me anyway, seem to have a lack of mentorship worked into their work. And I think that is becoming a little bit, it's getting better, especially because, you know, just from the last two years, honestly, a lot of those people are are gone now just as a, you know, as a byproduct of the pandemic, whether it's from illness or not being able to work anymore, uh, unfortunately, through death or just aging out or going into early retirement because people weren't working. I think there is a little bit more emphasis on mentoring the younger generations that are coming up. But I think the other side of it is that the the generations that are coming up are a little bit more willing to kind of adopt this style of like remixing their the influences that came before them and kind of making it their own. So you will see things like, okay, we're really into the Shaw Brothers. We really love that style of the old school classic kung fu martial arts movies, but a lot of these guys also grew up doing like parkour and figuring out how to do like tricking moves and break dancing and gymnastics. Like they're kind of taking all of that stuff and they're not afraid to combine them anymore and not afraid to make it a little muddy and a little messy and not quite as like the classic stylized thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of that is that um, I think in terms of if stunt work, uh, stunt riggers do not get enough credit for the work that they do because even going back to the classic kung fu movies, wires and wire work was always, always there, even in very simple, very unsophisticated forms. You always had wire work in those old kung fu martial arts movies. And that like you you almost never see an action movie that doesn't use wires or or stunt rigging of some kind and that is absolutely implemented here in everything everywhere all at once and i think that that actually should get some special mention too because as much wire work that they do rely on in the action sequences here that in itself is a throwback to the old kung fu movies and i think it's great that Stunt rigging is starting to take up a little bit more of that mentorship 
um, that mentorship mindset as well, um, possibly a little bit more than some of the other sides of it. <laughs> but that's an important part of this as well. And I think you're you're going to see um, the people that actually make the wires go are going to start to get a little bit more attention as as we get more kind of peaks behind the curtain. I was actually kind of surprised looking at individual people on the cast list. Be like, oh, who is this person? What did they do? A bunch of people on the cast list are straight up known for their stunt work. Mm -hmm. Chris already brought up the Lee brothers, the woman that plays the Kung Fu master that teaches an alternate version of Evelyn is also known for her stunt work. And they just, they, they are front facing people in that, you know, they don't need a stunt person to be a different version of, say, like Jenny Slate, who plays Debbie the dog mom, <laughs> or uh, they don't need they need a stunt actor, obviously, to be uh, James Hong in places because he's James Hong. But yeah, it's a lot of just people stepping up and being because obviously, in, in particular, the Lee brothers. Uh, one of them was originally one of the security people that was like trying to take Evelyn away. So he is there and getting a whole bunch of screen time as uh, Waymond is like doing his thing and setting himself up to defend Evelyn. Uh, and it all works very well. It's one of those expressions of the way that the movie uses the hell out of every single part of it. Not the found item stuff that people were talking about earlier, but like it reuses all of its characters, even the small ones, even Rick, the guy with the huge beard that was bugging Evelyn about the machine eating his 20. He comes back in multiple different ways. It's incredibly economical in terms of movies. I was watching uh, somebody posted a uh, video about the stunt team in this uh, on the Discord. It was a lady going into, the, in a film, stunt people's job is to kind of get clobbered by the hero, not get back up again unless they're Pat Roach and, and they're like a big bruiser who's taking ages to get rid of, and just kind of keep their face away from the camera. That way, feasibly, if they're wearing a crash helmet in one scene or a balaclava, they can be brought back again so they don't have to keep finding all of these unique-looking stunt people and they can work with a smaller team. This movie... We, due to its narrative conceit, actually allowed us to use the same people over and over again, effectively leaping into the same bodies and be, just becoming these these recurring faces that Evelyn has to, to to clobber time and again until she finally works out the way. Hold on till later to actually deal with them. So it, it's it's a film that allows the stunt team to become almost personally acquainted with the audience. One of the things that I realized is that most of the fight sequences are actually non-lethal. Mm. There are only a couple of times where death actually happens to punctuate the seriousness of a situation. Almost always inflicted by Jobu Tupaki, who we'll talk about in just a second. Exactly. And one of the things that I wondered as we were discussing the various ways where rope dart work comes into play in this movie. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, aside from the way it's used to comedic effect, that was incorporated into it because it is a, a way of fighting that has high on spectacle, mm -hmm. but not necessarily high on damage. 
it looks really impressive to watch, particularly if you use unexpected uh, ways of doing roped artwork with the fanny pack or with hmm, uh, another <laughs> item. <laughs> but yeah, oh. it's <laughs> sorry. I can't get that out of my head. I can't either. It's great. Um, no, but the uh, sound effects were really key because if that dog didn't make noises after it flew out of the movie, <laughs> it would be dead. <laughs> my God, that dog is dead. <laughs> um, people keep on bringing up Shang-Chi. Uh, rope dart work featured heavily in that as yeah, well. Yeah, his sister was into it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it just makes me wonder, especially in a pg-13 oriented movie if the like okay there's something we can do that looks really cool to watch on screen but doesn't necessarily immediately result in oh yeah that guy's dead afterwards so i, I was wondering if that was a factor see when jobu tupaki first turned up uh, now i'm thinking uh, she made that guy's head turn into confetti and he exploded i in this version of reality, is that guy completely dead? Like, was there a police investigation afterwards? Was she questioned? Or does he come back? I feel like she <laughs> combined him with the pinata universe for a moment. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what happens to people after they've had that done to them. See, watching that, the man turn into confetti and explode, I and just everything else that happens in this movie that is delightful and unexpected and uh, just completely out of the norm... Uh, I thought of Invincible, and I thought of The Boys, and I thought of Game of Thrones, and it's like, we turned this man into blood mist, and then his eyeball just flew at the screen, and we, we exploded this person, and blood was dripping off the face of this, this person, or this person was turned into a fine slop of blood, and they, they were all bloody, and blood came out, and I'm like, I know, it's not shocking, do something else, please. I am reminded of Garth Marenghi. Something was pouring from his mouth. He examined his sleeve. Blood? Blood. Crimson, copper-smelling blood. His blood. 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 And bits of sick. <laughs> like, <laughs> anyone ever says to you, we don't get anything original anymore. It's all just superheroes. Ask them if they've seen everything everywhere all at once. If they haven't, tell them to see that. Or just, just walk away immediately, because it's been right there for them to pick up, and they haven't watched it. If they have seen it, but they didn't like it, get your hot dog-fingered hand and just give them a slap before you walk away. Like At the exact point when this film should have been caterwauled to the high heavens and god knows we were all trying our best to get people to see it do you know what film was being ironically and pretend praised snorbius oh. fucking yeah. morbius like that was getting headlines that everything everywhere should have got because people were pretending to like it yeah. although this movie did do very well it did yeah for for Especially as for small budget. of a yeah, for as small of a budget, I was just going to say that it it has done very well. I think it's actually the most successful A24 film that's it been is. released is, up to this yeah. point. So word of mouth kind of did help this movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm just saying that all of those 
pretend that Morbius sweep tweets could just have been, for fuck's sake, go and see everything everywhere all at once. It, it took 100 million. You know it could have taken more than that, folks. It cost 25 million. That's a times four multiplier. That's good. Let's just see what Snorbius got. One of the most pointless fucking films ever made. Not those profit margins. I promise you. <laughs> cost uh, either 75 or 83 million. We don't know whether it cost 8 million more than it did. And it made 163.9 million. You know that even just one more million would have been going in the right direction if people had, had, had heard about this one. I feel like we need to do a better job collectively about what movies we make jokes about and what movies we say, no, seriously, go see this. We've established that there were 11 stunt actors. There was also only a five-man FX team. Uh, who knows anything about the way they arranged the actual uh, the, the shots and the special effects in this? Bear in mind, folks... We could not buy the Blu-ray. There is no Blu-ray for this. There is no predicted Blu-ray release date for this in the UK. The American Blu-ray is region locked. We are not allowed to see the extra bonus features. We are oh, not allowed really? to know how they made this film. So you folks in America and elsewhere will be able to tell us, poor British people for whom everything everywhere has forgotten. Although it is available <laughs> on Amazon Prime. Well, I, I listened to the commentary, so I'll also add okay. in here. Go for it, Mark. So I do have some good news for you, is that some of the behind-the-scenes stuff you can actually just look up on YouTube. Oh, cool. So, it, yeah, so it's, there is some of that available if you don't have access to Blu-ray or, you know, HD, you know, streaming uh, background stuff. 4K uh, is was... uh, multi-region uh, as standard, but they don't tend to put extras on the 4K. They put them all on the no. region-locked Blu-ray. Okay. No, they, they usually don't, um, which is a shame. This visual effects team is very small, only like five people, which is bananas to think about. Like something that is this, uh, this ambitious to have such a, a small team working on them. And I think they did a great job of blending the visual effects and special effects. So just to kind of give a, a you know distinction between the two, visual effects usually deals with anything that is computer generated, anything that has to be done post-production, um, any post effects that all falls under vis effects. Special effects are practical stuff. They do a lot of practical special effects work in this from using puppets to green screens and LED screens. One of the Daniels talked about some of the scenes where they show visually Evelyn warping into a different multiverse and picking up a different skill. The way they visually represent that, it's, you know, a lot of stuff goes by the screen really fast. Most of that was her just shot on a green screen with like a leaf blower, like a, a wind blower behind her to make her hair move. And then they kind of superimposed images from just stuff that the Daniels filmed on like a little 4K camera. They would just walk through the city and just kind of pick up little uh, montages of, of cityscapes and streets and all kinds of different things just to kind of throw into the background and then blurred it and made it go fast enough so that it, it had that kind of streaking effect. It looked like she was moving very fast from one multiverse to another. To me, it's it's done to, like, it's visually very pleasing to watch, but you can also tell that it's not quite perfect, but it is stitched together in a very satisfactory way because you do get the combination of those practical, tangible things and just using the visual effects and the computer elements to kind of 
blend everything together. So uh, listening to the commentary, these uh, good commentary. I wouldn't say it's as good as uh, a Del Toro, but it's it's good. It's definitely That's worth listening to. That's a high to. bar to meet. Yeah, that is a high bar to meet. Um, and it's, you know, it's two of them. So it's got some energy for bouncing off. But in terms of what Maya was saying, a lot of this is practical effects, a lot of wire work. And a lot of the FX, like the computer FX, is them taking stuff out rather than necessarily adding stuff in. Like in, in the upcoming fight scene with Jobu, the lights were just the actual lights on set with the flickering light effects. Someone just hooked those up to do that in reality rather than add them in post. Um, you know, they take out the wire work. Uh, they take out the stick that was pushing the rock around. That is the majority of the FX work. Uh, there's very little that's actually added, which is where a lot of your workload comes from in terms of FX. Uh, the building that they're in, the exterior shot, they added like 10 floors to it. It's actually a two-story building. The bagel is the uh, big, big FX shot. And the... Uh, there was a very funny quote. They said, uh, when we were learning uh, 3D modeling, one of the early like uh, tutorials is to make a bagel. Just because it's simple and That's relatively hilarious. easy. That is very funny. And yeah, uh, from timeline-wise, this movie is pre-pandemic. It was a majority filming completed before the uh, COVID safety protocols were instituted. There's a couple of pickup shots where Evelyn and Waymond are not in the same car. Uh, they're having to green screen those together because it's a pickup shot and the actors can't safely be near each other. You know, I mean, think about the timeline between when movies were shut down and to when this came out. Mm. That was a five-man crew working in their houses with nothing else to do for about two years. Yeah, That would be my answer as to how this uh, was done so well. It's mostly practical in a way that uh, FX crews are you know, used to handling and mm -hmm. anything new and fancy that takes a bunch of time wasn't actually most of the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of match cut shots that they do where that's it, a very old special effects move. You know, like you just, if you want something to disappear, you just have match cut of the same shot and some smoke appears and poof, that person's not there anymore. This also, and I... He's confetti now. He's confetti now, exactly. Uh, so a lot of those types of effects were done in, in a very old school, traditional style where they're just match cutting and and then the, the uh, uh, practical effects are put in. It's very reminiscent of Michel Gondry movies. And I think one of the Daniels actually mentioned that they they were pretty heavily influenced by Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, oh, which yeah, which really makes sense in terms of not just the way the the special effects and the visual effects were done, but also it kind of in the emotional arc, they kind of have a similar feel to them. So I think comparing it with something like a Michelle Gondry film is appropriate in this case. It's pretty obvious on the second viewing that the the building they're in is like only three stories tall, especially for me who works for the government and that kind of building is kind of standard and uh let me tell you you don't build a wide open atrium starting on the eighth floor <laughs> of any building it's just it's just very funny to me 
it feels very familiar as an office setting. I do think there's a, an element of uh, making the building more intimidating on the inside than it is on the outside. There are facets of what goes on in the IRS building that feel kind of deliberately placed to give you a sense of what governmental bureaucracy does to people. The power that- of Baroque uh, architecture? Yes. The next time you're watching the movie, keep your eye out for Terry the Taxodactyle. Um, he's been, uh, it was invented <laughs> for the film. I saw that. <laughs> it's not the actual IRS mascot, but they've slapped him in the ground of some scenes. Uh, apparently the cinematographer was not a fan, so the props department was fighting to get him in shots. <laughs> I, I saw that in the background a couple of times. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> Okay, we're about to get dark here. In the universe where Evelyn went to the closet and was mortally wounded by Deirdre, we meet Jobu Tupaki, who finishes that Evelyn off in universe-leaping fashion. So effectively, remember when Wayman said you can either walk left or, or right? The one who did go to the closet is now dead. So who is Jobu Tupaki? Who is this mysterious nemesis? And what happened to bring her here to this point, physically, intellectually, and emotionally? Leading on from what I said before about how the Alphaverse got us into this situation in the first place, Alpha Joy, who had been pushed into this universe awareness by her mother, has taken on every version of herself, which has thrown her into this sense of a meaningless chaos. And... While we don't know the exact circumstances of how she killed the Alpha Evelyn and what the, uh, the, the mechanics of it were, by doing so, she has effectively robbed herself of the chance to resolve the conflict at the core of that particular existence. So what she is doing now is trying to find a version of Evelyn who can cope with the multiverse concept without her brain exploding. And her reasons for doing this are so that she can explain herself and find somebody who can understand how she's come to the vision of the universe that she now has to carry around with her and she can feel a little bit less alone. She has created a everything bagel which gets set up beautifully by Alpha Waymond when he says, we originally thought it was a black hole. It is. It started off as she was bored one day and so she got a bagel and put everything on it, but it was literally everything. And the things that she mentions, aside from the, the customary additions to a bagel, such as sesame, poppy seed, and salt, and the way she delivers those lines. Oh, my Salt. We God. have an amazing actress here. Ha! Um, it's this sensuality to how she describes things that should taste or smell or feel, and it, it's just, it is so beautiful. Also, her singing voice is fantastic. Mm, it's amazing, isn't it? So, uh, but, but the other things that she adds to this bagel in particular feel like she talks about things that are personal to her so her every report card she ever had and and 
a couple of other things. And, but then she also mentions things that are in the internet. Every Craigslist advertisement, uh, every picture of every breed of dog. And it, it just kind of neatly encapsulates that that sense of what the internet and social media particularly have created in our current iteration of what the internet does, which is that it overwhelms and drowns you because there's so much in it. And I think that, more than anything else, communicates to uh, even the kind of person who doesn't necessarily think about this kind of uh, multi-universalism on a regular basis can very quickly grasp this is what she's talking about, this sense of not being able to filter anything out. Yeah, so so she's left herself in this position where she's so isolated that as this bagel starts to reach such a critical mass that it's pulling everything into itself, not just matter, but also time, and gradually it is starting to consume layers and layers of the multiverse. So there are entire timelines that this bagel is sucking in and sucking away. And that's causing a knock-on effect on the the timelines that still exist because although they themselves may not be directly affected yet, they do feel that there is another version of itself or a layer of itself somewhere that should be there that now isn't because the bagel has sucked it in. And uh, Jobu Tapaki has, has left herself in this situation where she now can't find a way to connect and everything has become meaningless and she's so tired and so disenchanted that she now just wants the bagel to consume her and this attempt to find an Evelyn who might just be able to see things how she sees them is like her last ditch effort to find a reason not to just walk into the bagel. It's almost like a twist about like what's going on in the movie about halfway through but in in the start it's very like they're trying to present it very black and white and honestly the whole movie feels like almost also a commentary on multiverse stories like a lot of this feels very how dc comics handles things like Mm -hmm. alphaverse being the most important feels very like how earth one is the the important dc universe Mm -hmm. where everything and and so when we get introduced to Jobu Tabaki, like there's there's a lot of the anti-monitor in her, which is the big multiversal um like omnicidal threat of the like he the, it's like you know levels scaling of a threat of a villain is and at the very top is did the you dude say who omnicidal? Just, yeah, he wants to. Yeah, that's a word to, that's so horrific it shouldn't even exist. Like it's, trillionaire. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, unlike Trillionaire, it is, there's nobody out there, I would hope, who is actually, my goal in life is to destroy everything that ever was. Thanos was getting there by the end. Even he, but yeah, even he's not the, like, the, the, the anti-monitor from the, the crisis, the big crisis on Infinite Earth. Yeah, that guy's a one dick. Of the biggest, yeah, he just wants, <laughs> just wants to wreck everything, yeah. like, for reasons, and they kind of, they definitely portray her as that at the start, like. We don't know what she wants. She can't be reasoned with. She's built something that we think is going to destroy everything. And we later find out it's not that simple. But th- at the beginning, it's she's got that a lot of that energy. And, and she's. I was impressed how generally terrifying they make her at the start. Like, 
one of the be- my favorite shots of the whole movie is when she's like, I don't know, scanning the channels basically, and she's like tilts her head, and as she tilts her head, like she jumps between universes and flash cuts, mm. and it was just this amazing shot that I loved. Her outfits are fucking incredible. Her again, they 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 go with the performance. I'm going to try not to just use superlatives at this point. Um, uh, Chris, do you have any more before we move to Alexa? Oh uh, yeah, just to to keep with the comic book thing. Like I walked away feeling like like be existing in all universes at once is like a crazily fascinating superpower to have. Could just and what she does with it is amazing. Yeah, I also specifically like uh, the fact that uh, we have uh, our version of Joy, who's definitely troubled, uh, but she's not the one doing all this. A version of her who was horrendously wronged jumped into her from another universe and is Rakakuni puppeteering her so like at the end of the film we get to keep our joy just would have been a good idea Marvel anyway Look, basically, look. This this came out practically the same week as uh, Multiverse of Madness, and I just felt like Kuzco going winner loser. The introduction of uh, Jobu Tapaki in the universe where Evelyn went into the closet is so terrifying. She's wearing this like covering outfit. She's got a face mask on. She's basically Darth Vader, and unlike Darth Vader. She is not alone. She has brought her own verse jumpers with her, like the Alpha Team, who show up a little bit later. They're kind of like but the Knights they... of Ren. Yes, the Knights of Ren. And uh, <laughs> one of her main uh, acolytes mm. is uh, Deidre. Deidre is one of the main believers in what Jobu Tapaki is doing, because Jobu Tapaki has like a whole cult thing of like people who have drawn a black circle to represent the bagel on their foreheads and they travel the multiverse trying to find a good Evelyn and they serve her which is you know Jobu Tapaki could probably do this all herself but she can only she can only focus like fully on one at a time so it makes sense that she's got some underlings and uh, in the commentary they mentioned that they had like a whole like uh, spiel that uh, Deidre was supposed to say about like the beliefs of the cult of the bagel and they've got like this whole like uh, ritual system and it mostly got cut but you can still see bits of that because like when you see them in the bagel room they've got like face shields and everything so that they don't absorb too much information and I, I adore Jobu Tapaki. she's exactly the kind of villain that I've always gravitated to um, is it Mixaplex? Mixes From DC, mix a pit lick. Mix, spit. yes, spit lick. <laughs> mix, mix a, a spit. Mix a lick. Mix, yes, spit lick. Yeah, yeah. Four um, words and then just say them as quickly as possible. Mix a nope, I, I'm, I'm gonna, but I, I, and to understand, I don't actually know who that is. I saw one episode of <laughs> Superman the Animated it's Series. Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, where he was messing around with like uh, Bizarro, mm. and oh, he's. Okay infinitely powerful and can do anything he wants on a scale that other people can't even begin to comprehend. Mm-hmm. And I love villains like that. They're very tricky to do though because they have to have something that stops them from just immediately killing everyone. Yeah. And in this case, Jobu just doesn't want to kill everyone right now. That's not really her plan. So she has 
fun with it. Like in her fight scene, she's just goofing around because nothing in this like hallway could possibly hurt her. So of course she's going to have fun with it. She's much like uh, Q from Star Trek. Q, I, I, Q is yes. another oh, yeah. similar. It's 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 the 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 all powerful being with incredibly petty motivations. <laughs> I mean, Joe Jobu Jobu has much better motivations than Mix or Q have, which is usually just to annoy the shit out of their uh, designated. I must moral. only use these powers to annoy. You know, Chris talked about like there's there's a bit of a twist um, with the way Jobu Tabaki is is presented to the audience. And I feel like a lesser film would have saved Jobu equals joy until like act three. But this movie not only tells the audience in like Jobu Tabaki's second scene that it's joy because you see like the aspect ratio changes. She leaves the bar and that she turns to face the camera. And so the audience knows what they're dealing with before the characters do. So in that way, we get to instead of the movie trying to like be one of those like, oh, hey, I did a neat trick. Here's a twist. Isn't that neat? It's instead it's letting the audience catch up with information so that we can focus on how it impacts the characters. Because once Evelyn finds out, you know, we've we've known for like, what, 20 minutes or something before the impact of who Jobu is really settles on her. And then we get to see how she processes that. And she goes through basically what you were talking about, the the alpha versus version of how to handle this of like, no, she can't be reasoned with. You just have to destroy her, you know, give her one less vessel in this universe. And so she goes through that in like five minutes, and that's already the movie using Jobu Topaki in a much more interesting way than almost any other story would do, because she's almost essentially Owlman from DC's um, Justice League Crisis on Two Earth. If everything has already happened, then no choice matters except for choosing to destroy. But instead of like inflicting that on other people, she, like the the whole thing that Jobu is about is like trying to figure out if she's wrong and then remove herself from the equation if she's not. And the way that the film explores that, it's you start expanding the the scope of the threat outward, but then it almost immediately starts contracting it in so that instead of the big blue beam in the sky being like, oh no, it's gonna wipe out the gobbledygoo that kills everyone, it's you you just you're invested in in one person like she's got multiversal cells but it's this one being that you're invested in and so i i think this is an example of the daniels again taking bits and pieces of of stories and villains and motivations that we've seen but using them in a way that not only feels like new and fresh because they're coming at it from their own sort of you know fun like indie uh, invigorated perspective, but it also feels very prescient or, or at least very much commentating on the times. Like, you know, they never spell out, oh no, Joy spent too much online and she got radicalized into thinking that nothing matters now. But I mean, that's a very easily sort of parallel to make of like, you got to watch out what your kids are being exposed to and, and what you're pushing them towards with your expectations and, and how much that messes with their perception of themselves mattering. And that's, that's just something that I think that, you know, especially, you know, Stephanie Sue captures shockingly well, in addition to being this incredible threat, as well as being fucking hilarious and so fun to watch. She's like a quadruple threat 
of a performer slash character in terms of what she's doing here because she's just leaving all these like big arch things on the table while still making uh, yeah, just a minute Marion <laughs> I'm sorry while, while still making room for this absolutely heartbreaking drama that's the center of the character I also really like the fact that they don't try to make the big reveal of this movie who Jobu is, but rather what is it that she wants and what her arc is. So I, I just to, I, I'm agreeing with you that I also like that they don't try to stretch out that mystery in that way very much. Also, this, this is a question for you, Alex. Is one of your questions for us, who is the actual move, villain of this movie? No, I didn't uh, want to see it in such black and white terms, but uh, okay. I, I could I could ask that if you have a good answer to that. That question, I think, is something that comes up in this film, certainly, and I think it's something that it does, you know, bear some further pondering because it is a little bit of a, a gray answer. You know, it's not completely black and white who the actual villain in this movie is, but I didn't want to go too much into that because... I was like, I don't know if Alex actually has that question on the table, but I think it is, uh, Jobu is a good starting point for that because I think the film does set her up very, you know, uh, traditionally as like, oh, this is the big bad of the movie. And then as it goes along, it's way more complicated than that. It's really not as simple as just a matter of no, Jobu is the big bad, and she is chaotic evil, and because she's chaotic evil, we have to stop her. Like, it gets so much more involved and so much more complex than, you know, a, a traditional, like, action movie like this would would normally go through. Um, and I think that's... It, jo, Jobu and Joy, Jobu slash Joy, <laughs> is such an important character in this film and carries such a huge emotional thread throughout the whole film. And a lot of that involves the older generations coming to terms with change and seeing things from another perspective, not even necessarily her perspective, but that plays into it as well, but just opening their minds a little bit more. And that is actually like perfectly visually represented later on when um, Evelyn kind of embraces the Google eyes. <laughs> she kind of puts it right in the middle of her forehead, like a third eye. And I thought that was hilarious, but I was like, yes, that's kind of what her emotional arc is, is leading to is to getting the, the people that came before her to kind of see things from her perspective. And one of the things I love about this is that they take somebody that is, who would be traditionally the main villain of the film. And like, even right from the beginning, when we were first introduced to joy, uh, someone mentioned like the microaggressions going on between, um, between Waymond and Evelyn, but Evelyn and her microaggressions toward joy are just devastating. It's like, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes because you see her go all through, you know, and, I know this is this is a very common thing, and I, I go through this with my dad a lot because I'm a first-generation American on my dad's side. So I come from an immigrant parent as well, <laughs> at least with my dad. But it's like these little things that they say, and they're very subtle in in their aggressions. They're very, you know, it's like those little passive-aggressive things that they say, and it's like, 
it seems small at first until it's like the paper cuts. The paper cuts just happen over and over and over and over again until you are actively bleeding. Death by a thousand microaggressions? Yeah, pretty much. Like death by a thousand cuts, like almost literally. I think. See, that's why I think that if we are going to label anything in this movie a villain, it's humankind's twisted, broken brain when it comes to our families collectively mm. that that the 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 villain is in fact conceptual and it's part of our condition yeah that's definitely part of it and i think you know again just going back to it i think joy has sort of reached that point in the film like not just joe butaki but joy herself mm. in like the normal our joy universe yeah our joy has kind of reached that breaking point where this has been going on for so long and she has tried so many times to get these different, you know, at different phases of her life, which kind of are different versions of Evelyn, but also in terms of the multiverse, actual different versions of Evelyn. She's just trying to get her mom to see things from her perspective. She's just trying to make her see things the way she sees them and keeps trying and failing until our Evelyn finally starts to. Something that came to me over and over again about this movie is that it lives or dies on its dichotomies, Mm -hmm. not binaries, dichotomies, contrasting two things which can be opposites but aren't necessarily, and that allows for a lot more nuance between the two, leading to a lot of what Maya was talking about in terms of who is the real bad guy or what is actually going on between these two distinct things. Among many other dichotomies, the two things that are contrasting each other here in terms of Evelyn and Joy are... And this was an idea that hadn't necessarily come to me until we started talking about this more. If this Joy originated in the Alphaverse, the way... Alpha Waymond describes the Evelyn that we start with could almost be considered an Omega Evelyn. And the idea that it's this version that Jobu Tepaki meets, the one that she has been searching for, and the way that contrasts against that first scene where we see Joy, and she's staring into the swirling of the drier mirror, circular, but also we imagine like Jobu Topaki staring into the bagel. This version of Joy is connected through a kind of despair to this version of Evelyn that is part of what connects the individual drama of this first world that we see them in and the larger drama of all Evelyn's and all Joy's at the end. You're getting pretty good at podcasting, dude. <laughs> oh, Sharon's got one more thing. You may have inspired her. One more tiny point. Now, this is this was there's a tiny moment in this scene that really caught my attention the first time I saw it. And if this gets weird, 
Alex Uh-oh. might just cut this bit out, and that's fine. I'm I'm okay with that. And if my interpretation on this is is doesn't make any sense to anyone else, I will completely understand. The moment when Joy sits down in front of her mother and does the thing with the fingers... I knew you were going to talk about this. <laughs> I cannot, if you prefer... No, no, it's fine. We're always searching for yonic imagery. Okay, so... Okay, well, that helps me then, because that means that it at least does mean the same thing to you, or at least something similar as it did mm. to me. Because when I was at school, this was one of the things that... Um, you know how in school, like, girl groups do things like the, the clapping of the hands and the... And the light as a feather, stiff as a board. Exactly. And then they're like the fortune-telling and, yeah, and they, they, they know the mysteries of hopscotch. And, <laughs> and all these sort of weird little <laughs> girls-only mysteries that go on, that get passed around, um, hidden mm. away, and, and it's all sort of very weird. But this was a thing where you you put your fingers into somebody else's like this and then you open it up. And the way it was transmitted to me was somebody did that and then they said, right, what does that look like? And I went, I don't know. And they said, good, that means you're not gay. Brilliant. And uh, That is using it for evil. Yes, I know. I, real- I realise that now. <laughs> and hmm. there, is a, there is an irony in the fact that they maybe just caught me a few years too early. But anyway, the, um, <laughs> the, the fact that this is being shown by Joy to Evelyn, it just struck me that this is sort of something that represents a, uh, a, a feminine mystery being passed from daughter to mother Which is rather than the other way round. It should be Evelyn giving joy information about how to interact with the world. But because she has this generational trauma that has cut her off from her own sort of sequence of knowing things, she is unable to do that. Mm. <clears throat> I don't think you're very far off in that. Like, I don't think that's weird, Sharon, because we've already seen imagery. Well, we've already seen imagery of like Evelyn kind of, going through like the you know seeing her whole life flash before her eyes so there's already been kind of like birth canal imagery Mm. set up in the film already and i think this is just a an echo or a reminder of that it is like alex was saying it's very yonic imagery i mean let's just come right out and say it the position that joy puts her mother's fingers in is like a scissoring position Mm. You know, and she's what is she trying to do here? She's trying to get her mom to open up and accept her for who she is and see things from her perspective. And I think very explicitly, one of the things she's trying to open her mind to is I'm a gay woman. I like girls. And this these are the types of things that two women who are in a romantic relationship do with each other. So just learn to accept it and embrace it and deal with it, you know, like, come on, like, come along with me here and and actually stop and look at it. Stop avoiding it. Stop brushing it off and confusing Becky's pronouns and stop telling Gong Gong that she's just a very good friend of mine. Like, stop all that. Mm. Actually sit down with me and face it with me together. Like, that's, that's really what she's trying to get to. Yeah. And I, I don't think you're at all off in in seeing that imagery in there. I think it's very much 
text. <laughs> yeah, but then you, that that does tie in with what Waymond is trying to do with uh, Evelyn as well. Mm. That he with the divorce yes. papers, he's trying to get her to face something which she has been mm-hmm. uh, sweeping aside and, and brushing under the carpet. And too busy today. Yeah, she's very yeah. Like Michelle Yeoh's very good at saying that in a way that she convinces herself and and us. Yeah. There's never enough time for people. Yeah. Indeed. And so all of this important stuff just ends up being mm. ignored. And actually, Jobu does say, like, you know, you're still hung. There's everything in the universe and you're still hung up over mm-hmm. the fact that I've got a girlfriend. Yeah. But also yeah. as well, um, the... Does the, she say who thinks she is gay? Like, What's the, what's the actual phrasing on you, that one? Yeah, you, you're, you're the reason that she's that she's talking to Jobu about joy and she says you're the reason she's so sad, you're the reason that, that she's she all mixed she's, up. And she has you're to the whisper she she's gay, gay, like, in case yeah. anyone else hears. But the, the moment when... Uh, Evelyn has just come back from the, let's call it the Michelle Yeoh world. And she says to Waymond... Being Michelle Yeoh. I, yeah, being Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> uh, she says to Waymond, hmm. I've, I've seen the world where I didn't go with you, where we, we never got married. It was beautiful. And there's, a, there's something about... It looked like about, a one-car wire film. It did. <laughs> there's something about that conversation which is heartbreaking because yeah. she's effectively saying to him, my, my life would have been wonderful if we'd never got married. And it feels in that moment so harsh that she's doing it. Yeah. But this mm. is step one. For her to recognise that and for her to say it out loud, now she can't ignore it anymore. Now she has to deal with it. Mm. She has to acknowledge that she's unhappy before she can move to getting to a better place. Precisely, yeah. yeah. So this is extended, very violent therapy the whole way through the film. And <laughs> isn't, Works for me. <laughs> isn't it fascinating that the other place that so much gay energy shows up in this film is in an alternate universe which is intrinsically phallic? Mm. Yeah. Sausage fingers. Mm-hmm. Now, Evelyn and Waymond must escape a series of attackers sent by Jobu, which also includes a restored Our Universe Joy for a short while so that they can have conversations. This has them scurrying around the IRS offices, hiding in various rooms, and it all leads up to the central conflict in the movie, exemplified by a daughter who, in at least one reality, has hardcore embraced nihilism and a mother who in this reality must understand and wholly embrace existentialism it is a knockdown drag out slobber knocker brawl between friedrich nietzsche and immanuel kant what is the fundamental difference between these two philosophies to the best of our knowledge none of us being philosophy majors I honestly always love when movies basically deal with this exact subject matter. And, you know, I'm also not a philosophy major, so I can't get into the nitty gritty of it. But nihilism is basically nothing in this world. Like, we're not here for a reason. None, nobody, There's no plan. This is all chaos and random shit bouncing against each other. And eventually it'll all go away. It all ends in oblivion. And just kind of like the despair of that. And it's it's interesting because like there's evidence Nietzsche didn't really fully support that idea. But that's kind of what nihilism has become in the public consciousness of just like of we always always mention we believe in nothing. Lebowski, nothing, nothing, and, Lebowski, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, and that that's really like there are there's no set rule to the universe. There's there's no set goodness. So do whatever you want. 
or just give in to existential despair because none of this matters. Nothing you can do will ever matter. Eventually, all of this will go away. The sun will expand to to consume the earth and then collapse into a black hole and no one will ever remember we're here. You know, fun thoughts like that. There's quite a bit of Joker in Jobu Topaki. She almost says we live in a society at one point. But again, this is what every writer of Joker is blushingly groping for this level yes. of depth of character and yes. this performance. At the, yes, at the very core of Joker as a modern character is is the joke that he's laughing at is that nothing matters. It's that none all of this one big cosmic gag. Exactly. And so existentialism, which I, I often have heard just simply described as anti-nihilism, is basically the acknowledgement that, yeah, nothing matters. Again, no, there are no there are no rules. There are no set. Like, your life has no inherent meaning to it. But because there are no rules, that means you can do whatever you want. And like, it's not like, you know, like, oh, do what you want. Take what you want. It's just like. Basically, how I always sum it up is is nothing matters and therefore everything matters, because what matters is what you decide matters. If nothing is inherently better than anything else. So basically what you care about is the thing that matters, what you decide if, if it makes you happy and you decide to spend your life doing that. That's what matters. Because all we got is what we we have right here. All we got is each other and the things that we love, basically. (laughs) So the modern um, conception of nihilism came about, ironically, from the Enlightenment movement from the, uh, I'd say, the 1800s, roughly. It was basically a moment where um, the philosophers and the thinkers and the uh, top of the societal pyramid types we're abandoning God and religion as the fundamental basis of how society should be structured. We were moving away from Catholicism runs everything towards the industrialists run everything. And that switch created some uh, very interesting uh, contradictions in people's heads because previously the idea was like, oh, well, what matters and where does morality come from? It comes from God. Like, there's a guy up there, he says this is what is true and what's going to happen, and we're just guessing and interpreting. Whereas it switches to, oh, well, we can, we don't have a God, but I bet you we can figure it out ourselves if we just think really hard about it. And that comes across in the scene where Rock Jobu says that, or types that, um, we used to think that we were the center of the universe. We we believed it so blindly that we killed people for that, and then for we discovered. We weren't. Yeah, we and then we discovered that the sun is the center of the universe, and now uh, in the alpha verse, we've discovered that not only is the sun the center of the universe, there's infinite suns. There, there's so many suns, it's uh, incomprehensible, and it makes humans small and pointless and stupid. And that is the uh, basic concept of the nihilism. And the existentialism comes from the the difference between – they're working with the same information. The universe is unfathomably vast and you are small and tiny. Nihilists find that utterly crushing and unsatisfying, whereas existentialists find it very freeing. 
uh, and, you know, oh, I don't actually matter. I can just go to the shop and buy some candy bars and it's not going to actually make me a bad person. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I can love... wank as much as I like and I'm never going to exactly. make God cry. <laughs> and you notice how all the nihilists are the ones who are really obsessed with you shouldn't wank off because it's ruining your internal precious fluid. Yeah, you could be learning how to program a computer or build a house. <laughs> and uh, that that uh, difference in reaction is so fascinating to me because um, I don't have much uh, red experience with uh, nihilism or existentialism, but I do have a lot of red experience with uh, objectivism because I had a bit of an Ayn Rand phase in high school. But I Yikes. came at it from a really Oof. weird direction. Mm-hmm. I finished reading Atlas Shrugged, and to sum it up, Objectivism is be selfish, other people don't matter. And I came away with it from be selfish. Oh, well, that's why I have friends, because it's selfish. A friendship is a fundamentally selfish behavior because I like transactional. Yeah, well, it's not exactly transactional. What it is, is I keep friends around because they make me happy. (laughs) And it's just sort of like a switch, like you do good things for other people because it's good for you as well. Like it and that is absolutely not what Anne Rand meant. Ayn Rand that's was just ants on a picnic, wasn't she? Oh yeah, she she was a very bad person, but <laughs> I find it uh, in sort of comparable in that I took the information she presented and came to the opposite conclusion mm. in much the same way nihilists and existentialists are working with the same data and reaching different conclusions and it's difficult to say that either is wrong. <laughs> it, I mean, ultimately, you could say much uh, you, more equivocally, which of those people is a dick? And in this case, <laughs> Jobu is a dick. Um, and it's I'm glad that you mentioned uh, objectivism, because when Jobu starts approaching her mother, what's she hefting over her shoulder? It's a weapon. A dildo? Nope. Okay. Are you talking about the golf dildo? Are you talking about the golf club? A golf club. Where has mm. a golf club been used as a weapon? Oh, Bioshock. God. Bioshock. A man chooses oh, a yeah. slave obeys. That's, All that's the dudes Ryan who played shit. that game got to the end and went away thinking that Andrew Ryan was right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the whole I, I, thing is a condemnation of Ryan. <laughs> anyway. So is it possible that Daniels looked at stuff that did that and presented people with these philosophical narratives that got wildly misinterpreted and went, okay, we're going to beat this one into you with a dildo. With a golf club. (laughs) (laughs) Dildo golf club butt plug. Okay. Have you ever played dildo golf club butt plug? It's really fun. It's Armin Shimmerman's fault that people believed in Andrew Ryan. He's yeah. too good of a voice too good actor. Of a voice. No, another Star Trek oh. link there. Uh, Greg. Comparing existentialism and nihilism is like comparing two other dichotomies that are central to the film. Despair versus hope hmm. and love versus fear. All of that is tied up together in terms of Evelyn's relationship to Joy, Evelyn's relationship to Waymond, Evelyn's relationship to Gongong. It's all interweaving in this... I was trying to think of the best 
visual representation for it. It's like a set of infinitely expanding Venn diagrams. I need look no further than the philosopher Michelle McNamara for my conclusions. Just over a year ago, um, I became a widower, and uh, I have I'm moving along as best I can. It is not, you know I'm I can get up and I can do my job. I can be a dad, but uh, it's not you know it, it's it's still the wound is there. It is healing. It's not shut yet. My wife was a, a true crime writer and researcher, and her the phrase she hated the most was, you know, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> she, and she's like, no, it fucking doesn't. It's chaos. It's all random, and it's horrifying. And if you want to try to reduce the horror and reduce the chaos, be kind. That's all you can do. It's chaos. Be kind. She would just say that. Oh, it's chaos. Be kind. Now... I would always, we'd have these huge philosophical arguments where I was like, I don't believe in a, in a intelligent uh, creator per se, but I think that there might be a, a lattice work of logic and meaning to the universe that maybe we're too small to see. And she was like, sweetie, it's all random. It's all chaos. It's chaos. Be kind. It's chaos. Be kind. And then we would go back and forth. And then she won the argument in the shittiest way possible. <laughs> And if there, if there is some intelligence up there with a plan, then his or her or its plan sucks. If part of the plan was looking at me and Michelle as a couple and going, well, I gotta take one of them, now let me see. She investigates cold cases and tries to bring a sense of relief and, and uh, sense to bereaved families, and uh, he talks about his dick in front of drunks. Now, who? <laughs> should I take off the planet right now? That's like looking down and seeing like Louis Pasteur and the guy who fluffs the donkey at the Tijuana fuck show. And you're like, well, those, those donkey dicks aren't gonna get hard on their own. I gotta, someone's gonna invent pasteurization eventually. And actually at one point during one of Wayman's speeches, that very he does say line. Be kind, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. He does. He says In a moment of chaos, oh. he says, "Be kind." Hmm. Yeah. When we don't know what's going on and we're confused and scared, be uh -huh. kind. That's essentially what it boils down to. I, I've been a lot of you are on the Discord, and you should probably we get a little personal. I've been I've been going through some stuff lately yeah. mentally, and and watch it getting to watch that again. I just I just burst into tears because I I try to live I try to live my Wayman and Evelyn is a lot like me and my wife's own relationship a little we're 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 a little more functional than they are but they we have that dichotomy and I always try to live like that 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 if you put kindness out into the world it it'll get repaid to you and it's you know it's all chaos it's we're there's no reason for us to be here. It's all basic. It's all chaos and stuff banging together happened to lead to us being here. But at the same time, that makes it like a miracle that you are here, that we're all here and they're all get to be here with each other. And it's, whew, it's just, 
it's I'm just happy to be here with you people. And uh <laughs> I am sharing also the enjoying this cosmic unlikeliness. And uh it's to make another like silly comic book references because these get to me this is where it sits but like the the biggest sentiment of existential and was is actually just freaking beta ray bill who is a thor the knockoff. horse thor no, the horse thor <laughs> but he has this whole thing where his people like don't, ironically don't really believe in gods they don't have their own gods and things have not really worked out for them and there's just this line he gives and this short little speech was just like I am alone. I look at the heavens and think them empty. And if not empty, I find the idea of worshipping whatever dwells there obscene. But that doesn't change what's right. If there's nothing but what we make in this world, let us make good. And God, I just try to live by that. That's just, a good horse. He's he's a he's a good horse boy. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we thought by the way Bill was gonna be in Thor Fall? He really the should have been. He deserves I, that hammer. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they really, he really should have been because he's the best, like, opposite of a uh, uh, gore. Gore. He yeah. <laughs> More on that next week, folks. So, does, another- does that make Beta Ray Bill the opposite of a horse loose in the hospital? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Alpha Ray Bill. Okay, so how and why is this Evelyn? The one. Why is she uniquely skilled for this impossible task of not only facing seemingly unstoppable assailants, but also of convincing the unconvincible? The obvious answer that Wayman gives her is because she's had all these disappointments in her life. And so that she's she's got she's sort of like stuck in like the the vent she's like in the middle of the venn diagram where all these other options around her are happy evelyn happily evelyn happy evelyn and happy evelyn after yeah but that's that's again you know once you get into the the meat of the film what you see is that that's an explanation that is similarly to how they're talking about jobu that is limited by wayman's own personal experiences and desires it's it's not necessarily the truth it's not the entire reason um, they talk with with her father specifically. He talks about how she's she's a girl who you know never finishes anything. And so what what you have here is someone who is like yes, she's experienced a lot of disappointments and she she's constantly second guessing herself. But the way she turns that around is that she's got all of these things that she has got like a little bit of a toe in so she's able to jump into these bodies and be like okay this is this is just a little bit familiar but what really settles her is she is compassionate in ways that we aren't necessarily like shown earlier on you know so much so much of what her her deal is is she's sort of like stuck and unable to emotionally engage with people but once she's actually able to like you know, in the film's own like visual sci-fi language, like commit to another universe, you know, like, okay, I'm going to live this choice. And and the more she expands, the more she's able to not necessarily, you know, function without, you know, something going wrong every time she takes a hit or, or every time, you know, something gets fractured. But we see her ability to care for other people expand more and more and more. And so what we've actually got a by, by the time we get to the end of the film what you've actually got is is a woman who it seems like 
she's brushing everything off, but it's it's more like she's just like protecting herself from caring too much about anything else. But once she's able to, the the amount of like empathy that she's got for everyone that that ends up being her superpower because she's so able to put herself in everyone else's shoes she's like you know i i know what you're going through i've been through this before i know what this feeling is and i know what you need i know what helped you know i I know what can help get us through this and and so i think that's something that you know again that the film like starts off saying oh it's because you it's because you're a piece of shit uh, but but it's and it's and it's not like untrue because well, again, it never she's, says she's a piece of shit. It's just that she's the perennial traveler of the less interesting road. But but yeah, it, they basically call it like you're the worst, Evelyn. But that's why you're the best. And it's like no, it's it's not because you know it's not it's it's more complicated than that. Um, but it is still no less uh, you know amusing in in terms of how it's set up and slightly subversive of what we're used to from a chosen one sort of narrative. Yeah, this movie is uh, a exploration and a discussion of ADHD. It is mm-hmm. it is the best on-screen representation of what having ADHD is like. They Evelyn started originally has... trying to make that direct and one-to-one, and then they realized they would insult millions of people. Well, uh, the thing is, is that, yes, she was written uh, with the intention of her character having undiagnosed adult ADHD. And when on earth would she have been diagnosed? She grew up in China in, like, the 70s, and it runs a little... Uh, laundromat as an adult like what is she going to do is she actually going to go to a psychologist no she is not going to do that but she still has to deal with the symptoms of adhd and she has developed over the course of her life ways of handling these things and i can personally attest that adhd messes with a lot of things and one of the big things it messes with is your ability to comprehend time evelyn has terrible time management skills and she can only handle things when they become a crisis which is why waymond has to tell her that they're going to get a divorce just so that she'll pay attention to him because she has so much calling for her attention and a lot of that is self-inflicted like she could handle these things a little bit more ahead of time but it's not that she can't do these things in a more timely manner it's that she cannot make her brain engage with these things until there is no choice because her brain only wants to engage with the things it enjoys and she doesn't enjoy her job she she's been searching for something else to do and uh that that's in the tax paperwork she's been trying to be a singer which she pulled off in another of her life she's tried to be a massage therapist she's tried to be a teacher she's tried to be all these things and whether she enjoyed them or not that was her brain seeking that moment of uh excitement of something new and something to think about and it it fades and you can't hold on to it and it also manifests in the way that she does not pay attention to what the her loved ones are saying because that is something i can also say is that uh, maybe it's a slight uh expression of autism as well but other people's emotions are something you have to activate in your like you have to sort of put your brain in gear in order to like oh my roommate is having a really bad day I have to think about this now. You can't like do it in the background. Other people's emotions are an entirely separate part of your brain from 
I'm enjoying my book or I'm watching this television show or I'm doing dishes. You can't combine them. You have to shift gears and it can be abrupt. It can be jarring. It can be painful. And if there's a lot of people calling for your attention, it's very easy to shut down and just focus on the physical tasks that need to be done. You can't focus on what emotional needs Joy needs. You can't focus on what emotional needs Wayman needs. You can only focus on the physical needs. You're going to make the shop work better. You're, you're going to make everyone happy because there's money and there's food and everyone's physical needs are taken care of and it's not enough. And that is why she can handle the multiverse so well because the multiverse is a representation of that is a representation of the fact that all these other like ideas and concepts are calling for your attention and she tries slotting between them in that sort of like breaking glass effect is the rough gear shift and she tries that for a while in the movie and eventually her brain can't handle all the gear shifts she's tried to shift into suddenly and the metaphor is the pot with holes in it the pot falls apart the juggling act she tried to hold together it cannot be done she cannot physically juggle all the different tasks or all the different skills she's taken on to solve this problem she has yeah. to absorb them and confront them and actually talk to them yeah how we know that she has gotten control over her ability is when it no longer feels like the abrupt gear shift like you were talking about earlier and when she is able to move from one possibility to another like flowing water mm -hmm. evelyn puts her ability to connect with so many different possibilities to good use in deliberately opening herself up to as many universes as she can in the hope that she can save Joy if she understands Jobu, if she can grasp that uh, and have empathy for that. I've seen literally everything and it's drowning me. That's what she's, she is consciously and intentionally trying to do. And that's really key. The fact that she doesn't just... Uh, lapse into that by mistake. She recognises that this is what needs doing and she deliberately tries to engage with it. But she does something very different in terms of launching herself into the process of that and engaging with the chaos. Um, very different, that is, from what uh, Alpha Waymond has tried to show her, tried to teach her to do. Everybody else who's verse-jumping gets communication from the Alphaverse to say... Here's a universe that has a skill that you can use in this situation. Here is the random action that you have to do in order to be able to sling yourself, uh, slingshot yourself into that. There you go. Now do that one thing. That is not what Evelyn does when that moment comes where she suddenly starts entering that flow state and it really starts working for her. She is taking the random action first that throws her into a different version of herself without necessarily the foreknowledge of where it's going to put her, who it's going to put her in. Then she takes what she's got in front of her, brings that back to her current situation and applies the skill that she was given randomly or accidentally. And it, it's, this, it's this sense of using everything the universe throws at her 
in order to achieve what she wants to achieve, rather than doing the thing which we tend to be taught growing up we're supposed to do, which is pick this one skill, learn that one skill, apply that one skill to this one career and persist with that one career um, until you reach a point where society around you feels that they can satisfactorily say you finished it. Because the idea that this this thing about you never finish anything, she has done so many different things. What possible measure of finished are these people using? How do you finish being a singer? How do you finish being a teacher? That doesn't make any sense. These are things that she has done and has a basic comprehension of, which she is then able to apply for this situation that nobody has ever been in before. So, yeah, there, that. She, she learns pizza sign spinning to defeat other people with martial arts. <laughs> Indeed. As things go deeper and Evelyn starts to properly experience every life that she could have led, tasting rather than being splattered by them at lightning speed, she starts to understand more about herself and those connected to her than she ever could have comprehended before this day, including, but not limited to, Joy, Waymond, Deirdre, her movie star self, her opera singer self, her hot dog hand self, the version of her that is Ian Holm in Rakakuni, exposing the fraudulent Tepan chef, and the universe without life wherein she and Joy are simply rocks. So the question for the group is, what does she see? What does she learn? And how does she react? The uh, joke universe of them having hot dogs for fingers. Great joke. Absolutely hilarious looking. A little gross when they start squirting mustard and ketchup out of their fingers into each other's mouths. Just, that, that's a little, like, we talked about you didn't like um, the uh, Swiss Army Man. I liked Swiss Army Man, but I can see why you didn't. Could have done with more farting. <laughs> Could have done with more farting. But so that universe that seems like such a goddamn silly joke is the one where she's married to Deidre. That's her learning why a woman could love another woman like so she can understand joy's lesbianism and it's it i i love that universe like it's such a joke but they're also just happy married older lesbians with cats and it's beautiful (laughs) and in this repeatedly the thing she has to actually express to uh way earlier is love for her enemy and didra positions herself as her enemy this acolyte of jobu tapaki over and over again so absolutely but part of what expands our evelyn's mind is understanding that in one universe we are opposite a desk from each other and you are trying to destroy me it seems in the hot dog fingers world there's an immense amount of vulnerability there, which Evelyn has not really allowed herself to experience in her life, in this life. It is, in effect, re-understanding love, because everything about, if you look at the flashback, everything about her going off with Waymond was more about escaping the life she had to try to forge something for herself with this ally that she had acquired. And so much of it was tinged with disappointment. It's like she's as disappointed with the life she made for herself as her father was disappointed with her. So she hasn't actually left that behind at all. She carried it with her. What a repeated motif that we see in all of these universes is that something that she has done has caused 
active like emotional distress or or harm to these people and one of the things that we see her grapple with is the the understanding of how she's harmed these people and then what to do about it because this is where we get to those those conflicting ideologies of like well if if nothing matters then then what do you do and so all of these these moments of her like like the fact that she emotionally bodies the coolest version of Wayman like he you know he's there he's smoking the cigarette he's in this suit he's like you know Tony Lung and he's kind of like doing the thing where he's talking about like you you kind of you fuck this up and so she's being confronted with all of these things and like it's it's the you know, in one way, it's a very basic. You know, your actions have consequences, and so then you get that that sort of stretch where she's just sort of just raging out, and you know, well, fuck it all. But then you get to see in action of like, wait a minute, what does this mean for me? Do do I want to live with this? Do I want to live with the knowledge that I've caused this harm to people, even if it like doesn't necessarily matter? The fact that we see her go from just like having these like chance encounters in these other universes to controlling them by choosing to just do take the smallest possible steps to just fix like just the the smallest little things you know it's it's expressed in these like wild ass ways of of jumping on this guy's back and having and doing the raccoon hair thing but it's all about just like taking that small amount of time just like listen to your kid about what they're trying to tell you and it's also showing her that like you know yes there's there's these things that you've done that are that are like you know mistakes you have screwed up you have caused harm but it's it's not the end you know there's there's still a way forward you can still choose to do something about it you know you can sit here and and do and and feel like a giant piece of shit or you can try to like Wayman, you know, like Wayman says, you you can try and just be kind. You can try and just like put push back against that just a little bit, even if it's just you know bringing cookies to the to the person who's tax auditing you. And so the the way that that ties into into the theme and then and then her speech in the parking lot at the end is is just like that. That's what absolutely just bodies me emotionally about this movie every single time. One of the most impressive aspects of Evelyn's experience jumping into all these different universes and what she learns from them is that most of them, just from a practical standpoint, are universes that involve actual people doing actual things that we can imagine someone's choice leading to this end result, such as not going off with Waymond and stuff like that. But what this movie does that Multiverse of Madness hinted at and then did nothing with is actually expand on the idea of, okay, hold on a second. What if we have a universe where people have hot dogs for figures? What if we have a universe where there is literally a raccoon teaching someone to cook? What if there is a kid's art universe, a pinata universe, a rock universe? It actually does something with these ideas and even though some of them could simply be comedy moments and in many cases they are it also flips that fucking script and actually does something serious with it a lot of the time in point of fact the rock universe is something that is posed as being very serious and being like 
okay, everything is still. There are no people here. Therefore, there's nothing to actually care about, nothing that matters. And then towards the end of the movie, Evelyn's like, nope, turning this rock around. You can see I've got Google eyes on. And then even though that's like a silly sort of twist, they then use that as one of the biggest emotional punches of, of her rock jumping after joy. The the like most broad, like very on the nose. If you jump, I jump and it's a couple rocks, but it doesn't matter. It lands so hard. So one of the things that Evelyn kind of comes away from, you know, experiencing these other universes is not just coming to terms with some of the things that she's been struggling with, but learning. And and I think this is actually one of like the biggest statements about this whole film, just in general is learning how the other person does something like she, you know, very explicitly when she's talking to the, the business, <laughs> the CEO Waymond, uh, when she's the movie star in that universe where, they never were together. They never had a child, all this other stuff. like The in the mood for love universe. Yeah, Waymond is set up as if he's become actually quite successful, at least on the surface, without Evelyn there. But there's a melancholy with him that suggests that his life is actually very empty and very lonely. And I think they're, they're both kind of struggling with that in our universe uh, where they're together and everything but he's he says something so poignant and i think this is one of the things that really gets to evelyn and finally gets her to to wake up and kind of it's it's the moment where she's starting to open up her third eye i think the the moment that really kind of encapsulated all of this for me was when evelyn hears wayman say like you know your father always thought of me as a joke. He thought that I was too sweet for my own good and that I was naive and weak. And in a lot of traditional, like especially in action films, Waymond would kind of be seen as the weak one because he's not overtly masculine, because he's he's not successful in the way that the CEO tuxedo wearing Waymond is. But one of the most emotionally impactful things they says is this the 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 my survival has come from the fact that I stayed sweet and that I stayed kind and that I choose to see the good of things. Like that is the way that he fights and is one of the most important lessons that Evelyn takes away. Like, oh, I understand now. I understand why my husband is the way that he is because his goodness and his sweetness, that's his survival tactic. That's how he chooses to fight. And you know what? Even though he has all this outward success, what he says in the end is, in another life, I would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. He would rather have had something very simple and and even with all of the problems. So I think Evelyn's being willing to embrace the the messy side of things because things aren't going to be perfect between her and Waymond after this. She she starts to see things from Joy's perspective. She starts to kind of break down some of their communication um, hurdles and some of their language barriers by the end of the film. 
But even at the end of the movie, she's like, she's still kind of like, hey, there are still things about you that I don't necessarily approve of. But it doesn't change the fact that I still want you here and I still want to be here with you. Wayman's not perfect. But even though he's not perfect, she is like, yeah, it actually is fun just doing laundry and taxes with him. And like, that's our life. And he makes it fun. And I can learn to fight like him and and give people not what they what I think needs to happen to them, but what they actually need. And I think that's one of the coolest tricks of of this film is that it's an action movie where violence isn't the answer. Empathy is. And And compassion and understanding is. Even with Gong Gong, it's like, well, if you started to take things from Gong Gong's perspective, he needs to be woken up a little bit too. That's kind of what he needs. He needs to embrace his family as it is, not the this perfect ideal family that he wanted it to be. So this is Becky, and this is your granddaughter's girlfriend. Not a very good friend, her girlfriend. And no, I'm not perfect, but this is what we have. And these are the people who love you, and why not love us in return? You know, like... That's kind of where where this kind of all comes to a head for me is when she starts to see I'm I'm going to learn to fight like you. I'm going to learn to fight like Gong Gong. I'm going to learn to fight like Joy. Like she she kind of internalizes all of these things that she's seen from the multiple universes and reaches the conclusion that it's the empathy that's going to get them out of this very complicated situation. In this way, a lot of what you were just describing hits home in thematically with both turning red and free guy. One, one, just going back to the hot dog reality for a second, which I agree is also extremely funny, but it's, it's not just understanding how joy could love another woman. I, I think that's an important bit of it, but also coming to understand Deirdre as a person. And she says specifically, you know, I, I remember what how I reacted when my ex-husband served me divorce papers. Like I was I was a mess. I drove my car through my neighbor's kitchen window, you know? Like she reacted in a very crazy way as well. And suddenly Wayman's statement, like, oh, what what did you do? Like, how did you get her to to give us another chance? Well, I just talked to her. That's when it finally makes sense to Evelyn. That's when it finally hits home. It's like, just talk to her. Just find out what's going on here. You probably have a lot more common ground than you thought, which is how, in another universe, you could have been married to her with the the hot dog fingers, and you got really good with your feet, and she's actually a very sweet person and learns how to play the piano very well with her toes. It's not just that the multiverses are places where she learns to care about other people, but she also, like, just basic information, like that speech where... Um, uh, Wong Kar Wai Waymond uh, says that uh, empathy is my weapon. It's it's the tool for protecting myself. That is true for Waymond across all the multiverses we see him. But it's not something um, Laundry Waymond would be capable of verbalizing so clearly for Evelyn. So it's something she learns about her husband that she has to go hear from another version of him. So, th- and that's just, that's why the multiverse works so well 
and not just, uh, oh, we went and traveled to these places and learned some stuff. No, we're carrying information around the multiverse. Yeah, like it wouldn't have been possible to learn this specific or to find this specific piece of the puzzle without going to this other multiverse where this happened. In maybe my favorite action sequence of the film, which puts it in the running for all time, by the way, Evelyn climbs the stairs towards her daughter, aiming to stop her beloved's descent into the nothingness of the everything bagel. It's very mythological. She is attacked. It's a very never-ending story. The nothing, yeah. She is attacked by one more wave of these same people she's been fighting off for two-thirds of the movie, but she changes the combat on a fundamental level. The question is, how and why might this be a rather important aspect of the film? When Evelyn decides to start fighting like Waymond, which is fighting with empathy instead of with her fists or her pinkies or a you know, riot shield or whatever she has in her possession – what she ends up doing is basically giving the these jumpers, these people that she's been in conflict with physically and otherwise throughout the whole film, she starts giving them what they need and and getting to the root of of what will actually make them happy and what will make them satisfied. Like what's going to give them joy and what's going to give them peace more than anything. So there's a, a couple that's on the bottom of the staircase that they – they want to find love, so they find love within each other. One of the guys that she encounters has a really bad spinal has really bad spinal issues, and she like gives him an adjustment like a chiropractor, and suddenly he feels great. So it's not approaching them with violence anymore. It's approaching them with sympathy, with empathy, and with something that they actually are lacking in their lives. She's providing it to them. Um, it's a really beautiful sequence where <laughs> instead of of ending in a, a pile of of bodies that are like covered in blood and bruises and stuff, everybody's like holding a puppy or you know the her the guy gray head silver sorry her silver haired teacher is holding the cookie and finally eating it herself and going finally mm. yes. <laughs> Yes, finally getting the cookie. And um, the the guy that you mentioned uh, from earlier in the laundromat, he has a very throwaway line in the beginning of the movie like, oh, my, you know, my wife before she died, she used to wear that exact same perfume. And she just takes the perfume bottle and just sprays it in his face and leaves it with him. Like little things like that that are set up in such a small way in the beginning that pay off. Um, and even some things that that don't fully pay off like we never knew about the guy with the puppy but who cares everybody's happy with puppies but the guy who has like the little uh t the little playroom behind his office that is set up in the beginning and pays off where she's like she puts a ball gag in his mouth and spanks him like that's, that's uh, one really... of the two directors daniel shinard by the way oh is that him oh that's funny okay well now we know what he's into um <laughs> <laughs> But um, but I love the fact that, like, in a traditional action film, you would see an escalation of the violence. And this is an action film where they almost do the opposite. It de-escalates the violence so that everybody is actually very satisfied and comes to a level of peace at the end. And the, the culmination of this is that when Evelyn finally does reach joy. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, 
when she finally gets to Joy, um, they they both do these like kung fu poses, and it looks like they're gonna get in this conflict. They're gonna have this big fight, and all Evelyn does is just open her arms to embrace Joy. That part of the movie really got to me this this last time. Was like, oh my god, she's embracing Joy. Like it's it's just so. It's the perfect way to cap this this whole conflict off, and the fact that um, along the way, there's Gong Gong and there's Waymond kind of holding on to Evelyn to keep Joy from fully like going into the bagel. That being the representation of them breaking through this generational trauma, um, I just thought was so beautifully done and very emotionally impactful, obviously, since <laughs> I am now in tears again. <laughs> Okay, somebody else talk. <laughs> okay. Um, Gong Gong has a robot suit in that scene. Yes, he does. Like made out of computer parts from the IRS office. It's really, really cool. It's really well, well it's, done. It's also his chair. Like he, he it transforms mm. into a mech suit. It's the coolest thing. I also like how it's it's all about finding empathy. The, there's the really beautiful thing with I think his name's Rick, as Maya said. The, the he's clearly still in mourning of his wife, and so Evelyn gives him that memory of him. And this is also the part where she she basically rec, like rec, reconciles with Gong Gong because she like she brings out like basically it seems like the the real wound is that. Gong, Gong didn't fight for her to any degree. Like when she left with Wayman, he just like, fine, you're not my daughter anymore. And just as she said, just let her go. And she's she basically says she can't make that same mistake with joy. And that like that finally gets to, to Gong Gong that he did something like what he did was wrong. That that because because his whole thing is he he wants Evelyn to just give up on joy. That joy, like that's the whole twist of the album. Like they can't, they can't believe that uh, joy is Jobu could be saved. That yeah. she's that she's beyond redemption. But it just feels like they haven't tried because Evelyn sees it pretty quickly that that she's just a hurt little girl basically in the end, and that that it's it's. And I like how they do because she doesn't force Joy to like step away from the edge. She she lets Joy go go in, but with the understanding that she's there, that she loves her, and that's just that understanding is what brings Joy back from the edge. Not not Evelyn just running up and ripping her away from it. There's two other Matrix references in there because there's there's a shot where Joy holds Evelyn's head against the bagel, similar to Smith. Trying to like uh, have uh, Neo run over by the train because Joy has been calling her Evelyn the whole movie, and there's this whole response: "You stop calling me Evelyn. I am your mother. My name <laughs> is Mother." <laughs> yes, 
it's almost like you can't say it's making re- Matrix references. It's just Matrix is such a very clear inspiration for this movie. It's just all over the place. Evelyn says, I'm learning to fight like you. That's the same cadence as Morpheus saying he's beginning to believe. <laughs> yeah, the other reference that Chris was about to talk about was, of course, everyone shooting bullets at Evelyn mm. and she stops them. And that's when she when she grabs one of the bullets and like takes it away and every, all the rest of them fall she that's the moment where she replaces it with the third eye google eye like there is a a razor thin margin that this this film walks on top of once they get to the top of those stairs because like chris said the you're dealing with a you you have to not let joy go without a fight but you also can't just stop her not only because like after the entire fight is all about like not physically stopping and hurting people like you you have to once you're at the top of those stairs like evelyn's entire thing is about showing that she will fight for her daughter but she's not going to stop her daughter's autonomy from being important and and the fact that they pull that off not just with the way the characters talk to each other but with the way the film visualizes spectacle and action is not something that I have that I've ever seen uh, attempted before at this level, especially given the fact that they're able to just like throw in like random visual gags that that are just so they, they're perfectly on theme. They're also hilarious as fuck. The moment when she when she puts the ball gag in the dude's mouth, I turned to my wife and I said, "This is the greatest movie I have ever seen," and I, I don't think I was wrong because it's it's that just like little extra salt on the bagel. This is like that should collapse in on itself, but somehow it's just staying there. But that, that's the thing. I, I, the thing that was a huge challenge at the end of this is that after all of this reconciliation and I'm, I'm going to jump after you thing, um, we then get a back and forth between the, the Evelyn who went home to the laundromat party and uh, her version of Joy who says, I just want to go, just let me go. And I really like the fact that as an audience sitting there, you can see that there is no technically right answer at this point. Because if she says, okay, fine, go, then she's d- making Gong Gong's mistake. And if she says, no, you can't go, she's making Evelyn's mistake. So what what balance can be struck? And it's a messy balance in the end. It's There, there is no inspired, amazing speech that she makes. She doesn't hit her daughter with a, a level of profundity that stills her. It's it's much more of a finding a version of herself that can relate. Ev- Evelyn's speech at that point is um, uh, reminiscent of something that uh, Joy has to explain to her girlfriend, where uh, Evelyn will say, you're fat, as an expression of love. Uh, don't necessarily like that as an expression of love, but that's what she does in this moment. She goes up to Joy and says, you're leaving and you never call and I hate it. It pulls Joy back because what she's saying is, yeah, I don't like you and I would love for uh, all these problems to just go away, but I can't let them because then you're gone and I cannot accept that. It draws a firm line between uh, what 
consequences joy will uh, evelyn will accept and not having joy is not one of them it, it's a very i think uh stark sort of like explanation of you can have things about people that you do not like and that just drive you crazy but you still need them in your life in this just absolutely primal way and and the fact that you have like this this is the one moment where wayman tries to interject and it's Joy who says, like, no, no. And, and like, for a lot of the movie, like, Wayman's the one who, at least in this universe, like, he's sort of in her corner. And this is the one time she's like, wait a minute. I need to hear the rest of what my mom has to say. And so what you what you have is the family, like, finally figuring out while in, the, in its own, like, sort of messy and, and sometimes insulting way of, like, how this tripod works. Where exactly is everyone's where, – where can everyone be planted in order for everyone to, like, ex, you know, explain to each other what they need? And, and the fact that Joy – is the one who's like, no, I have to hear this. Like you can, you can feel that as like the turning point, and the fact that it's just a, a very simple sentence and a, a very like in so many other movies, it would like a be a big sort of thing that would happen in the the like the anamorphic universe in the office building where all the action is happening. But here, it's just like, no, this is the this is the family drama universe in the parking lot. Evelyn is acknowledging that. Their relationship, that version of their lives is messy and has a lot of problems. But there is also still goodness that can come out of it that is lost if Joy leaves. If Joy leaves in that universe, if Joy destroys herself in all universes. And it is the potential for joy that Evelyn is trying to make her daughter see. It is hearkening all the way back to that very first scene where we see the family, Waymond, Evelyn, and Joy, watching something on TV and laughing and being happy for that one moment. And Evelyn is trying to say to her daughter that that is worth living for that is worth keeping i will always want to be here with you mm. yeah it, it's a it's a really powerful statement for the end is like look that this is you are a mess and you did take after me and i didn't want you to end up like me being aimless and never making a decision, but that's how you turn out. And, <laughs> and even though there's all that, and you know, th this is a very immigrant parent thing to do too. I know this from experience to be like, well, I, I don't like that tattoo. And Becky does need to grow her hair out. And like, there are things about you that I am going to criticize and that I don't like, but it doesn't matter because I'm always just going to want to be here with you. Um, one of the other things that I, I loved about the ending was that Evelyn kind of brings Waymond back into it as well and realizes that, like, even though she's not perfect and I'm not perfect, she's got a pretty great dad who is kind and showed her patience and, and caring. And honestly, Waymond, 
in spite of the fact that Gong Gong is very critical of him, he's being a better dad than Gong Gong was. So that that kind of is a, a part of it as well, is that not only is she embracing that messy side of her, but acknowledging that she's she has that support and she has the freedom to to just be who she is. She also recognizes those some of those qualities in Becky as she brings mm. her forwards. Yeah. There's there's a way that the Daniels because I I've heard you know from from a lot of people that like this is a very resonant immigrant story and you know I don't I don't have a basis for you know like making that statement because you know I, I I'm not but one of the things that I found really striking about this movie is the way that the Daniels find universality and specificity because you know the 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 smaller they go and the more granular they get like. There, there are so many things that I've, I've heard people call out as like these specific examples, like, like what you're talking about, Maya. It's just like this is a very like you know first generation, second generation Im- immigrant thing in a way of relating. But like if you really dig really deep into like how far the the Daniels go, it's like, yeah, you know we've we've had those awkward conversations in parking lots. We've we've had those those moments bent over the tax table trying to figure out those forms. We've the the way that they're able to dig into that like universal human experience and express that while also really capturing this experience from a very specific perspective but also using it as a lens to you know like like joy is opening up Evelyn's hands to expose these wider universal truths that are so resonant and so resonantly and, and expertly captured is what I think has has made this film have the kind of like the the sticking power that it has in in popular consciousness. While it's not like a Matrix level hit, it really feels like it's a you know everyone who sees this it's it's landing on them because it sort of digs into these things in a way that very few other genre movies have done at this particular level. Going all the way back to something that was said really, really early, I think you mentioned this, Brendan, that the uh, reverse of the constricting and trapping bagel, which is always black and burnt so it never looks tasty, <laughs> as opposed to the, the one that... Um, uh, Wayman scoffs down because he can finally have cream cheese since they have no cows in their universe. Uh, the, the reverse of that is the Google or googly eyes. Um, it's really significant that the eye is not just a static dot. The googly eye goes all over the place and whatever you put it on looks silly. So it is the spiritual opposite of that constricting, dark, foreboding circle. It is the, the, the ability to find joy. <laughs> I, 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 we got to the end and I just said, it is almost impossible that a movie could be this meaningful and also never come off as pretentious. And I think that's down to the fact that it constantly laughs at itself. It constantly embraces wholeheartedly absurdity. And there is a great merit in all-encompassing wisdom, but also buffoonery. The ability to 
to, to understand we can't possibly be the most profound thing in existence, we've got a, a pet rock right here. <laughs> I think it's also very relevant to that, that the person who punctures a lot of those pretentious moments is Joy. She's the one who laughs at the silly yeah. thing that her mum comes up with. And whether it's Jobu laughing at something that she finds... I'm laughing at it ironically. Yeah, or whether it is it's Joy a hollow laugh. laughing because something has just tickled her Hmm. it's that it is that character who encompasses both the film's potential uh strongest source of tension Hmm. and strongest source of releasing that tension is also significant Uh, people love christopher nolan films and he attempts the profound often especially in something like interstellar Uh, and obviously people uh, film aficionados love kubrick and we did our own kubrick season on that and Beautifully, Kubrick's work is is referenced here with that 2001 section with the sausage <laughs> finger to ape. Oh, yeah. But ultimately, uh, th- that profundity that both of these serious men are capable of never quite hits me deep down and hard because they, aside from in the case of, uh, I think... Um, Dr. Strangelove's probably uh, Kubrick's silliest film. They, they can't really laugh at themselves, otherwise they feel like they might undermine their point. You know, if you strip away all of the nonsense, it's a story about a little broken family. So many of us can relate to that. And so many of us require laughter just to be able to get through that shit. And I think that's probably why it, it, it wound up at this, this top spot the 2020s for me and like i said i look forward to anything that even comes close because it means we're getting some amazing movies i want there to be competition Mm -hmm. for this yeah it's got a very high bar to clear yeah yeah the other thing about the eyes that i just realized not only do they they make things silly but putting a pair of googly eyes on something immediately humanizes it yeah because because human brain is so hardwired to recognize faces as patterns that so just a pair of eyes just to be like that's a and so it so in this movie all about finding empathy in other people just like just hitting that basic human instinct of if this has two eyes and maybe a vague mouth it is a face of a person i recognize is like oh you know where they also do that is on uh on the cookies that they bring to deirdre there's a little mm. smiley face on the cookies that they bring to her. Raymond <laughs> makes those. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the voice of Rakakuni, it's never really apparent, is Randy Newman. Randy just, Newman. Just for that little Pixar like, yeah. He's, he I, sings I a song. I love the fact that he's there. I was like, that is so perfect that they had <laughs> Randy Newman come in and do this. It's a great puppet. This movie yeah. is absolutely a miracle. Um, like, like you're saying, it never gets pretentious, but it also never becomes the dumb action movie it absolutely could have been. It never becomes the silly comedy that, you know, just coming from uh, Swiss Army Man, it very easily could have been. Like, there's so many alternate versions of this movie that you can see it threatening to become, and they're all just a little bit lesser for not capturing the totality. Like, there's a 90s version of this movie where it's Jim Carrey hopping across multiverses, and it's probably very funny, um, there's a version of it where it's Stanley Kubrick or uh, Christopher Nolan exploring the concept of multiverses, and I'm sure it's very beard strokey <laughs> and intellectual. Oh, okay. oh, if you've got a beard, forget about it. <laughs> we, You'll be stroking that thing until dawn. 
We, There's we a version it. of this where the Wachowskis made it, <laughs> and um, it's a lot more actiony. Uh, let's say '90s Wachowskis. I think this is pretty close to what modern Wachowskis would make, mm. but they're not as funny as these Daniels guys. No, let's not yeah. pretend. They also no, can't get the same level of human out of the performances of their uh, actors. At least, not that I've seen. Everyone in this comes across like the first time we meet that redneck guy, and he's like, "You know, Evelyn, my wife used to wear that perfume." That would be so easy to, to just be like, he's a stereotype. And he does actually make a, a slightly racist comment. He's like, hey, that's a 20. I thought you people were supposed to be good with money. And you could imagine that they could just make him just that stereotype. But there's more to him. There's more to yeah. everyone. Everyone has an expansive story going backwards and outwards. And we keep seeing them. It's an empathy engine. Yeah. Also, I think there's more to their business. Like, this is something I noticed. Their um, laundry business is throwing a New Year's party, and their customers are attending? Mm. What? Yeah. Yeah. They are they're, clearly, they're actually, like, yeah. they're an embedded part of the community. Like, yeah. financial problems aside, they have succeeded. They're like the yeah. barbershop of laundries. Yeah, they are building a little bit of a community. And even though that, like, you know, the the Chinese immigrant family owning a laundromat, like, that in itself is a bit of a stereotype. But mm. I like the fact that they, they breeze right past it. Like, that is completely inconsequential. The fact that they have a laundry and live in the apartment above it doesn't matter. Um, this is just something that is a part of their lives. And, yeah, Alexa, like we were saying, like – it is a part of the community and everybody kind of, it's almost like a little gathering place for everyone. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, actresses in the film, Jenny Slate, who was in Venom, uh, her mm. character was credited <laughs> as Big Nose because yeah. that's what, how Michelle Yeoh refers to her. Then uh, the Daniels were told this comes off as kind of racist. So they changed her name to dog-owning mommy. Debbie in, the dog-owning uh, Debbie Debbie the the dog dog mama. mama. Debbie the dog-owning mommy. Just in, the, um, in the commentary, mm. uh, Daniel Kwan says that uh, the big nose thing is a very Asian immigrant thing. Mm. They're just generally surprised by how big Western noses are. Mm. And yeah, it kind of doesn't translate particularly yeah. well. <laughs> but I love the fact that they are able to fuck up and then go, yeah, we fucked up, let's change that around. Uh, rather than doubling down on their fuck-ups and going, no, no, because I'm doubly right, you see? Which is a very unenviable uh, quality. Well, here's another way that they managed to keep this movie grounded is that if you are a child of an immigrant parent like me, you will know that casual racism is absolutely a, a staple mm. of that, especially if they're of an older generation like that. Thanks, is, colonialism. Uh, yeah, that is just something that comes about when you least expect it and you go, hmm. Yes, you are from a different time and place, my friend. What are you going to do? Cancel me? <laughs> just, I know you and, kids like to do that. <laughs> just oh, just oh to go back to something uh, Alexa had said, it's, uh, the, the lesser version of this movie does exist. We've referenced it a couple times. It's The One starring mm. Jet Li. Mm-hmm. And that, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of, I feel like that movie's, de- like that, this movie feels like somehow a weird natural evolution of The One, yeah. which is you know, fine, it's a fun little action movie, but it doesn't really do anything super interesting other than having Jet Li fight himself at one point. I did, actually, the- I did actually like in the one that, like, the good Jet Li is just, like, thrown back into an alternate universe where his wife is still alive. Like, I liked that. 
Uh, also, it has uh, all new metal soundtrack, so better movie. Oh. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Oh boy! Damn straight. <laughs> One of the great background details: the actress that plays Becky Joy's girlfriend, mm-hmm. Tally Mandel, is in a dance troupe with Sunita Mani. Sunita Mani was the queen in that show that they keep on using in the laundromat and was one of the quote-unquote stars of the Daniels' first big breakout hit. Turned out for what? Yes! (laughs) Yes! That was her? That was the uh, Indian girl on the second Mm -hmm. floor? The first guy on the top floor in that that music video is the other Daniel, Daniel Kwan. I did know that, I did know that. So yeah, he bursts into the princess's uh, bedroom and she's like, what the fuck are you doing? Stop humping my TV! And then she's like, you know what? I'm liking this song. (laughs) It may be fucked up and perverted, but the women always seem to come out on top in Turn Down For What. Seriously, (laughs) uh, that that, uh, video has shot to uh, some uh, top of my favorites. Love it. And I also love Sunita Mani in general. Mm. Um, She did very well in the TV show Mr. Robot. She was one of the notable characters in Glow. So, I, I mean, they didn't do as much with her, obviously, just having her big a background character, but it's kind of a little bit of a reflection of the community that the performers and everybody that made this film sort of made in and of themselves, mm. and how that's a reflection of the community aspects of the movie itself. Speaking of deeply appreciated communities, School of Movies is kept open with fully stocked classrooms by our patrons every month. Thank you to all of you. And the $15 top tiers get a shout out every week. So big special thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, who just joined this month, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, who you also heard on this episode, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, whom you also heard on this episode, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, who would have loved this film, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, who also joined just this month. Marty, if I messed up your name, let me know. In fact, if I ever mess anyone's name up, let me know. It's the only way I'll learn. Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helles Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. I really like what they did with the character of Deidre across this movie because I am also a government bureaucrat by by a trade. Uh, I'm not. I don't work oh, for boy. the IRS. I don't work for the IRS, but I do have a degree in accounting, and so I just like how they kind of <laughs> like humanize. She, 
Right, she is presented, like, from Evelyn's point of view as the enemy. Evelyn even kind of, like, falsely insinuates, I think, that Deidre is racist, which doesn't actually come across at any point, so I think it's just Evelyn being defensive. But bureaucracy is a lot of rules, and we we have to follow them. If we don't follow them, they become literal crimes. Like what? Ev- like Evelyn is technically in the wrong. Like what she di- what she doing? If she's doing it on purpose, is fraud. And but but like you know, like we're not faceless machines. Just sight sight like just following these rules that you don't understand. Like we're still people, and if you treat us like people, you know. You know, no one's really looking at certain things we might be doing. So, hey, <laughs> we might be able to help <laughs> you out if you treat me like a like a goddamn person and a not the government. <laughs> bring me cookies. I, yeah, bring me cookies. <laughs> <laughs> she is so genuinely oh, yeah. appreciative of those cookies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like at the at the end of their first meeting, what is she? Oh, thank you for the cookies. Very, very yeah. nice. Of you. Like, that's yeah. the thing that she appreciates. Um, and like, and like she like she even. Even though she's threatening them, she's still cutting them another break, which is like, you know, get it back to me by the end of the day. Like, she could have just said, no, screw you. You're here. You're we got to lean on your house. She could have screwed them over right then and there. But she doesn't. Um, It's one of these rare movies that, for one thing, makes me feel vindicated in my choice of career. Like, it reminds me why I do what I do and why I love this specific medium as an art form. And two, it feels like it was made specifically for me, like for my exact tastes and sense of humor. Like I don't, (laughs) I do not get that from movies very often at all. In fact, the last time going back to something you said way at the beginning, Alex, the last time I felt this way about a movie was Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. That's the last time I felt like, Oh my god, I feel like I made the right choice in my career and this feels like it was made for me in particular. And I know that that's impossible. <laughs> but it really does feel that way. It's like I there are parts of this movie that I think you know go so far to the absurd but I find them so funny and the comedy lands for me and and the fact that it is so emotionally impactful just is like that little cherry on top. Like it's funny and sweet and has such a, a depth and such a resonance to it, but yet can somehow stay so grounded and just being a family drama. Like it's, it's really an incredible milestone in filmmaking. I think I, I really I think it's a very important film with a lot of important things to say. For those people that either know they have ADHD because they've been diagnosed or believe they have undiagnosed ADHD, this movie is literally like being it's made for our brains. The the fact that this film not only is it important that like Michelle Yeoh got this part over Jackie Chan because I feel like the lesser version of this movie stars no disrespect to him but stars him because her career has so many mirrors to this version of Evelyn's life you know she was she initially trained to be a dancer she ended up like cutting her martial arts cinema career short you know in in the early days she's had multiple comebacks and multiple times where she's you know had the chance to break through with an international audience and like hasn't quite gotten there in the west 
until like the last few years. So there's all these great parallels. But I think one of the reasons why what Maya was saying resonates so well with so many people is we're seeing that Daniels, there's no such thing as the next Spielberg, but the experience of seeing a filmmaker become fully themselves is something that I feel speaks to a deep truth in it, you know, someone that you don't often see. So like Spielberg becoming Spielberg with Jaws and E.T. is is something that you see like you've got these references and influences that they're pulling from, but also making it so personal to themselves. And I think that's what the Daniels have have gotten here. Like it's you know, it's a movie that runs the exact same running time as The Matrix. The Matrix is clearly a milestone in their lives, but it's also such a drastic left turn and it is so wholly them and it is so wholly specific but it also it it carries such a powerful and such a large truth that we cannot help but be carried along by it and we are going to set the film down for now but i have a feeling at least a few of us will be revisiting it before we go can our guests tell you folks at home where we can find the work that you are the most proud of starting with Brendan. Uh, yes, if you ever wanted to read a crazy person write 2,000 words on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, I, I posted up a, uh, <laughs> a, a a long retrospective on, on the evolution of that particular property on... Send Fnaf's that to me, I need it. Oh, I'll, I have all right. a mighty uh, need! Oh, sorry, where can other people find it? Uh, it is on synapse.co. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E.co. Uh, you can also find me on the Geeks with Shields podcast talking about uh, lords of jewelry and whatnot. Uh, and you can find me on Matinee Heroes talking about uh, Taken. Or you can just uh, find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. Thank you. On that note, actually, our Patreon-exclusive bonus episode this week is... Sharon and I talking about the very dark Frank Miller Batman-style final Ninja Turtle story, The Last Ronin. Also coming up on the bonus feed, we have Batman vs. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Nickelodeon movie, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, both of which are great. Greg. For those of you that are familiar with me, I do a podcast called Through the Wind Door with my wonderful podcast mate toby skills youngest we primarily discuss the new century multiverse we are closing in on our to, to go heading towards the end of discussing Steamheart. the new century multiverse is as alex mentioned earlier its own multiverse story in terms of all of these stories taking place as part of a larger story but Toby and I are going to be expanding in a few different directions. Mm -hmm. And one of these is a sideshow we are tentatively calling Beyond the Wind Door. And one of our first episodes is definitely going to be discussing everything, <laughs> everywhere, all at once. Surf is still I, hungry, folks. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, I uh, there I've got plenty of notes that will probably make it into that episode. And I'm sure that Toby will bring in plenty of things that I haven't thought of. And, you know, just to stay on topic, we'll probably even talk about some crossover stuff between this movie and A New Century. Oh, my God. I'm just my mouth is watering just thinking about that. OK, you, you go to start that project. OK, <clears throat> Alejandra. 
Well, ironically, uh, the thing I'm most proud of is probably the Speed Racer podcast that released <laughs> last week. Um, that one was in the oven for so long that I kind of haven't done anything else for my YouTube channel since the questionable content video I pimped at the end of Speed Racer. Um, but my YouTube channel is Pluto Burns, and I do have more stuff planned for the year. So, you know, give me a subscribe and look forward to some cool stuff. And Chris. Uh, the work I'm proudest of is this episode right here. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I mostly don't do much of this sort of stuff. You can just find me on a couple other episodes of this show. Uh, I have plans with my friend, uh, Doc Hobb, who does the What the Shill hacking podcast, that we're going to do an episode on uh, hacking in media. That should be fun eventually. But uh, that's not out yet. So this is my proudest thing. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. We're honored. And finally, Maya. Well, speaking of the new Century Multiverse, you can hear my vocal talents on a new story from the new Century Multiverse. It's one of Alex's new novels that is in audio drama form called Panther Soul, where I play Mog. She is an incredibly scary individual, and I have a, a hell of a lot of fun playing her. So, Please check that out if you are a fan of audio dramas and these kind of multiversal kind of stories. And also, oh, sorry. I was going to say, Alex. please check that out if you're a fan of having nightmares, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, who who's actually going to say yes to being a fan of having nightmares? Anyway. I just love waking up in a cold sweat with this divine leopard clawing at me. As I walked the streets in search of clues to the Cicerone's whereabouts, Mog says, her voice tremulous and laden with warning, I followed a great turmoil. Stepping over those who crawled from the cesspits around my ankles to skew their bile upon the rancid earth. And I beheld our prize right there, almost within my grasp. What did you see? Stardancer, I almost wish you had been there. Oh boy. Anyway, um, another thing that you can see me in uh, coming up pretty soon uh, in the next couple of months, be on the lookout for Doom Patrol Season 4. That should be dropping within the next few weeks, definitely before the end of the year. I was the double for Crazy Jane and for a smaller recurring character that showed up in Season 3 as well. Her name is Isabel Feathers. So I'm in a bit of that season of Doom Patrol and hopefully it will still come out on HBO Max. I'm not sure what's going on with the WB over there, but mm. God willing, it will be actually releasing when it's supposed to, and you'll be able to stream it as normal. If you feel like following more stunt people on Instagram, my Insta handle is at the stunt lady. And we will be back next week with another Marvel movie, Thor, colon, Love and Thunder, now that it's finally available on Disney+. And Sharon can see it, because she hasn't yet. Until then, I've been everything. I've been everywhere. And All at Once is, is out. out.
Forgot to credit my roommate. Um, credit your roommate real quick. now. We'll include it as a, uh, an Easter yes. egg. Um, the everything, everywhere, all at once intro was suggested by my uh, beloved roommate Kaylee, who does not even listen to this show, but she heard the title <laughs> and was like, "Ah, she came up with that pun instantly." So she deserves credit crediting anyway. Thank you for that one. Uh, okay, now we're gonna go because it's three and a half hours. Um, and like I said, I got a migraine. Have had it for about an hour and a half now. Um, haven't had lunch. Haven't had lunch. Haven't drink some water. Sorry, take care guys. of yourself. Super we focused. love you. But no, this was, it was worth fantastic. it. It was worth the pain, and it is one of the best shows we've ever done. You know how the Lord of the Rings shows were like five hours long each, and those don't even really go into the nature of existence. <laughs> <sighs> okay, but just, thank you. just the nature of hobbits. Thank you all so so very much. Uh, we will be yes, thank you guys. Discord within, thank you uh, within half a day or so. Also, I was slightly concerned as to how much I'd be able to contribute to this because I was still crying from watching the film when mm. we started, and I had a feeling that that was going to continue. But now I feel less bad because most everybody else <laughs> cried too. Yeah, so, we were all. Uh, crying. We did the crying for you, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, uh, so we're going to press start.